are live. Welcome back to another episode of Growing with My Fellow Growers. Thank you all for coming. We are live on YouTube. This is Jack Greenstock filling in for Shane of the Cheap Home Grow podcast. And I'm going to go ahead and introduce our first panel member, Matthew Gates. Yeah, hey everyone. This is Matthew Gates, Integrated Pest Management Specialist, uh, Insectus Optimus Maximus, and whatever other names you want to say. But Matt's good with me. If you're interested in pest information, you can find it in two places. The first place is Xenthanol, which is a YouTube channel. Um, I also have a Patreon. And I'm also going to be commenting in the chat, which, by the way, use the live chat, not the top chat. And you can also find my content on Instagram at SyncAngel. I make a lot of content about pests and pathogens and how to deal with them and a lot of ecological stuff in general. Thank you very much for joining us again, Matthew. Next up, we have Dr. MJ. Hey guys, yeah, Dr. MJ Coco from CocoForCannabis.com. I want to encourage everybody to sign up for the Plant Training Grow Challenge we got coming up in August. And uh, yeah, I'm excited for the show today. Thank you for joining us. Uh, next up, we have Predicative Breeding. Hey, what's up, everybody? My name is Kyle Breeder. Um, I'm a cannabis breeder. If anybody's looking for uh, some good feminized seeds, you can go to pbreeding.com. Or if you want to check out my work, you can find me on any social media platform at Predicative Breeding. Uh, I primarily deal with plants that don't hermaphrodite, um, basically to provide better quality into the industry. Um, and I'm happy for the show tonight. Thanks for hosting, Jack. Always happy to host, and we're always happy to have you on the panel. Next up, we have another person who's done a little breeding himself, the American one. Hey, Jack, how you doing? Hey, panel. Hey, everyone in chat. Uh, I'm the American one. You can find me on YouTube. And I'm the American one with Akeens on Instagram. If you find the little guy with the American top hat, that's me. So. I love the logo, and I always love your input. And we've got a smaller panel tonight. We have a few guests that may be arriving late. I believe Brandon said he may be in Spartan Grown is uh, finishing up the float. If anybody saw the Michigan Bros Grow Show, I think they're all doing a little float somewhere in Michigan. And so they may be joining us a little bit later on. But otherwise, uh, I think we can go ahead and start off the show. I thought tonight maybe we could talk a little bit about some of the different flavors of cannabis and not just specifically terpenes, but somebody posed to me the question, is there any smell that cannabis cannot produce? And I sort of scratched my head and thought about it because I've heard that there's over 200 terpenes and seen tests that sort of lean to prove that and I've been finding more and more data about esters and other things like ketones and aldehydes and other minor cannabinoids and flavonoids that might produce different fl uh, flavors and smells in cannabis and I was curious if uh, anybody had maybe a unique smell or something that they found that wouldn't be your typical cannabis smell within their garden or anything that they've found in past grows that they'd like to share and maybe we could talk about some of the broad variety of cannabis smells and flavors. I mean, I, I, I feel like smells in general are kind of nebulous, but I am curious to see. We were just talking about that, um, that rock candy. Maybe we should talk about that. So Kyle, you bred that and Dr. MJ has recently grown it. So maybe you two could uh, start off. Yeah, I, I sort of agree with uh, Matt on this one. It's tough for me with smells. I was talking about that before we came on. Um, like like specific adjectives and sort of specific categories of smell. Um, I, I don't know. It's nebulous, like Matt was saying. But 
I think that there are sort of some that stand out more than others. Um, the New England raw candy is, I don't think necessarily notable for its smell as much as it's notable for some of its other characteristics though. Um, Could I make it simple for you and throw four characteristics yeah, yeah, that maybe sure. would one hit the nose? <laughs> we were through this before. Remember when we were doing the strain review for when I was talking to you about smells and flavors and all that kind of stuff. It's okay, but just for this one in particular, I've yeah. got a little chart that says sweet, sour, earthy, or floral. I would I would put the in the sweet and the floral sort of side to those. Um, but but then I also forgot spicy. Yeah, no, I would still do sweet and and floral for the New England rock candy in, in specific. Um, and you know it may be because I have a sort of a better connotation for those sort of sounding flavors too. And I kind of generally like it. I don't think it's earthy though. I don't think it's it's sour or those other like fuel-like or any of those things. So Kyle, you were talking a little bit about how you came to make the New England rock candy. And um, you said that you took a plant, you selfed it, and then you did a reverse back cross, I believe, if uh, I'm quoting you correctly. But maybe you could talk a little bit about the breeding process and what about the plant made you want to select it if it was smell, effect, or something else. <clears throat> Yeah, so when I first moved to Massachusetts, uh, I met a master grower by the name of Chris, uh, who came from Colorado, and um, you know some of the stuff over there was, was really good. We were just chatting about stuff, and he was talking about a strain called Alien Rock Candy, and we ended up finding a source for it, and um, so I, I purchased those, and uh, you know basically I, I popped those seeds, and uh, you know some of them some harmed, some didn't, and uh, I found one that I thought was pretty admirable, um, you know, just really vigorous uh, growth, uh, sturdy structure, sturdy secondaries, which to me, all that stuff uh, plays a huge role, you know, and we had this conversation in the past where it's like, you know, if it's kind of slow and sluggish and runty, and this is just, again, my only opinion or what I look for, uh, and it could be very quality flower, but for me, that doesn't work for on a consumer standpoint, because a lot of people are, are looking for just really strong, vigorous plants. But this one plant in particular was was just really good, heavy trichomes. Um, you know, the terpenes had like a like a sour, sweet smell to it. And um, you know, so at that point, I I chose her as something I wanted to kind of venture in. I wanted to see basically what her genetic code had. So I I selfed it, which is basically um, you know spraying uh, silver thiosulfate on one branch, created pollen sacs, and that's a whole deep dive into feminizing. But uh, you know, so I wiped it back on another branch of herself. I got that seed lot. I planted that seed lot, and uh, I had to. Uh, ironically, there wasn't that much variation. Um, so the people who put in work before us, which I think is Alien Genetics, um, you know, put some alien pretty good labs, work. I think. Yeah, or maybe so, it was Alien Genetics. I think you're right, Alien Genetics. Yeah. Um, so they did some good work on that strain, you know, and uh, you know, I give them credit 100% um, for what they've done to it. But uh, so I searched through it. I found some sativa leaning, which is probably the sour double side of her, and I found some, uh, um, you know, a cross between the two. But um, yeah, so I just I planted that seed lot, and I found uh, one that was just very admirable i mean just all around uh you know could be strong on the terpene side um but um you know just overall like mj was saying i mean just a very very strong plant and uh, the psycho effects is like i would consider it like almost severe and like it's just a very narcotic i don't say narcotics it doesn't bring you down or like couch lock but it's just a very strong uh plant and uh yeah ironically so if anybody's listening they're from california uh i have the mother of New England rock candy in California right now at a nursery. So uh, uh, anybody who's living down there should be seeing that strain in the dispensaries at some point. So be on the lookout. <laughs> That's exciting for me to hear. Yeah. 
We want to give a second to welcome Noah the Groa to the chat. We had a little bit of a technical difficulty getting started. Uh, that's all on me. Uh, I missed Shane's email that he sent me the password. And I also wasn't, uh, I was listening to the people in the chat on the podcast. I wasn't uh, communicating back and forth in the messages. So sorry, Noah, for the delay. But everybody, welcome Noah the Groa. And Noah, you can go ahead and introduce yourself. Yeah, no problem. How's it going, everybody? Uh, yeah, I'm Noah the Groa. I'm a medical girl from the Pacific Northwest, and I'm happy to be here with all you guys. How's it going? Good. So we were talking a little bit about flavors and smell and cannabis, and I was saying, somebody asked me the question, uh, if I believe that cannabis could make any smell, and I'm not sure whether it can or can't, but I've noticed that it can make smells of a lot of things, and I was asking Dr. MJ and Kyle about, uh, we were talking earlier before the show about New England rock candy, and they described a little bit about the smells and flavors. I wanted to maybe give uh, the American one an opportunity to, to describe maybe if he's ever had any unique or out there interesting smells that uh, maybe would not be yeah. traditionally considered like cannabis smelling or just interesting to you for one reason or another. I definitely had this one plant. Um, I called it Pez, but it was, a, it was I think it was a, um, a purple kush where it came in... Um, material labeled purple kush and it was a seed i got out of it and i swear it smelled like bologna lunch meat it smelled like bologna it was bizarro but it was really good it was really potent and yeah that was i love like that because weirdest smell i ever had yeah i had one plant that smelled like bacon while it was growing and uh stabby mcstabwood has bred i think it's sniper crossed with uh something from Subcool, and uh people say it, it smells like hormel pepperoni so a lot of people have been describing like, quote, meat terps, as they call it, or short for terpenes. But uh, there's a lot of interesting smells. We just got a, a great organic grower who joined us, Mr. Hota Herb. So I want to give you an opportunity to introduce yourself. And we're talking a little bit about all the wide varieties of smells in cannabis. And maybe mm. you could uh, share one of the experiences that you've had with uh, maybe more out there or not common smell in cannabis. How's everybody doing? Happy Sunday, everybody. Happy July. Hope everybody's doing great. Uh, Hota Herb at J-O-T-A-H-E-R-B on Instagram. I'm a home hobbyist and regenerative cannabis enthusiast. Um, regenerative cannabis cultivation enthusiast, I guess is the best way to put it. Um, yeah, I mean, there's, there's just tons of really, really wild smells uh, out there. I had one that I was growing that smelt a lot like mothballs and i had another one that i was growing that was um like vix vapor rub um the vapor rub was was a um i'm trying to remember what the cross was on that that was a that was a medicinal i think it was actually a um bodhi's good medicine cross and um it it was like a vix vapor rub almost like a menthol uh, really, really wild smell to it. Absolutely. Um, another one I had was uh, called Goat Yogi. Uh, and that one's from Cannabisian. And uh, that one was like yogurt. Um, that one smelled like a yogurt. It was very, um, almost had a dairy uh, of a type of a smell to it. And uh, a little bit fruity, but definitely almost like eating a yogurt. Um, really, really interesting smells. It's funny you said uh, Vicks Vapor Rub. The same uh, cultivar that I grew, or strain, I grew 
that smelled like bacon while it was a live plant, the other seed of that plant smelled a lot like Vicks VapoRub, too. Mm-hmm. It was a Platinum Yeti F3 from Humboldt Seed Organization. And okay. uh, I wanted to throw it over to Noah the Groa. What's the most uh, unique or bizarre, interesting smell that you've come across so far? Wow. Um, well, the the Platinum Girl Scout cookie cut that I have that I really just love to death, that one has, uh, I swear, it smells just like cherries. Um, I don't know if that's, you know, I know it's got cherry in it, but I mean, I've grown, you name it, I've grown just about every cookie cross there is. Um, and I've never had it like that. Just this one platinum plant that I cherish and I, uh, I'll probably never let that one go. So it, it's, uh, it's, it's kind of funny, but I've, I've grown quite a few different ones. Like um, I've grown a different, I had a Gorilla Glue one cup that smelled just like gasoline. And um, yeah, uh, those are probably the two that come to my mind. I really am fond of the sort of gasoline or more fuel centric uh, cultivars or strains that they tend to have a great effect for me, just being extremely potent. A lot of the OGs, chems, things of that nature tend to have that uh, background at least. So I really enjoy those a lot. Um, But the other one that you talked about seems like it'd be interesting. I have seen Platinum Girl Scout cookie around, but it hasn't been cherry related. But I do have the cherry pie cut, which is supposedly the uh, mother of all cookies, as Gage Green refers to it as. And um, that allegedly... Uh, hermed onto OG Kush, which may have made the Girl Scout cookies. That's one of the hundreds of stories of the origin of that strain, but I do not claim to be the uh, holder of that knowledge and, and claim that to be true. That's just one of the several I've heard. So it might make sense that if it is there, that's where that cherry could be coming from. So Matthew, I know this isn't really IPM related, but terpenes do have a little bit to do with uh, attracting bugs and things like that. But I also know that you are a cannabis user yourself. So as far as your use goes, and uh, I know I don't know if you've cultivated in the past, but I know you work with people who do. Uh, is there any unique or interesting sense that you've come across recently or in the past at all that you'd like to share? Yeah, actually, um, to be honest, a lot of the sort of unique things um, or like the out of sort of out there terpenes and flavors and tastes that people talk about the meat terps you're talking about that's interesting to me I don't think I've ever experienced that really um even in cultivars that seemingly have it perhaps but um for me actually I was just I was using some of the I think it was the Girl Scout cookies that I recently acquired um or was it the what was the really trichomous one that we were talking about? You and I, Jack. I really, uh, I hate to say this, I can't recall. I've taken a good heavy dose of uh, full spectrum cannabis oil today and been smoking pretty strong and I'm off. <laughs> so like I went a little hard before the show and sat in the sun for like an hour. So I'm uh, a little spacey. So I apologize. I do not remember what uh, which one. I want to say that it was the Girl Scout cookies then. I'm pretty confident. Um, and it it had, it just had this sort of, and maybe this isn't typical of the cultivar, but it had a pretty significant sort of um, fruity berry taste and also, um, or flavor and also taste, which um, I don't always get. Um, and like with Dr. MJ Coco, I'm kind of the same way where like, um, 
not only do I recognize that like taste and flavor and all that super circumstantial, but also the fact that like it can be a little bit difficult to really um, sort of parse out sometimes. My father uh, would always say that his nose was very bad. He had a bad smeller, he would say, and I might be the same way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm definitely the same way. And what's interesting there is my wife is like tremendously well attuned to smells. Um, and it just always strikes me. She brings up smells in so many different kinds. I'm like, oh, wow, I'm not even paying attention to that whole dimension of the universe right now. So I, I can tell that there's a, a big difference. And some people just don't pick up on it as much, madam, in that group. Similarly, I would like to say, though, that um, I find that if I do pick up a flavor, even if it's a, if it's a subtle flavor, um, like with food, for example, or also with canvas, I really like the the lemon, the lime, the sour um, sort of sense, partly because they're some of the ones that I actually do detect uh, yep. pretty frequently. And also because, you know, and with food, like if I really like it, I like to use a lot of it. I like to, I like it to take, like, <laughs> yep. like with um, rosemary, for example, or something like that. Um, or I love those Sichuan peppercorns, but like, I wanted to taste like the entire Italian re reserve was like poured into my food. Uh, not all, not exactly, <laughs> but pretty much be less sensitive to smell than I think. And you're trying to sort of boost that up. And I totally agree with your comments about the, the limonene too, um, that lemony, that, that's actually one of the, the strains that I would bring up. And I think I have brought up in the past is my, the Dr. Lemon that I keep now. I can just put like one little nug in the grinder with whatever other um, buds that I have and it'll contribute a really strong sort of lemon flavor to it. So I like doing that. Um, and that's definitely also the one that I'm most sort of attuned to. I also like gas too. Um, so I definitely appreciate your comment there, Jack. You know, you mentioned the bug thing when, uh, when, you, when people mention, including myself, that they like the fuel gas sort of flavor or, or scent profile. It reminds me about how like, you know, like for like, you're gonna not be surprised I mentioned bugs here, but like beetles, for example, there are some that like, they'll be drawn to like antifreeze or like petrol or like, um, you know, cause the hydrocarbons, they, they sort of mimic or they might be similar to like pheromones or other certain um, scents that sort of signal something to them. So you'll often see that sometimes if you've ever wondered why certain insects aggregate um, for fruit flies, it's the alcohol and other sorts of things, but it's just kind of interesting to consider um, that to me that like, you know, why do we find these scents and flavors so great? And I, there's some obvious answers, but, you know, fuel, you know. I was always attracted to it as a kid, even at like the gas station when my parents were filling up. So I guess maybe I was destined to be a stoner like that. And, and skunk smell were always like very attractive to me. Everybody else was like, ew, it smells like skunk. It's like, hmm, that smells good. Even before like I ever smoked my first time. So I don't know, maybe it was in my genes or DNA. But I wanted to bring up two uh, smells that I hadn't heard brought up yet that were I recently experienced firsthand that were interesting to me. Um, and one was the garlic smell. And I know it's been around for a while. I've seen it on even like the old greenhouse seeds, uh, flavor wheels and stuff like that. But recently, the GMO has been uh, gaining a lot of popularity. I'm actually growing a GMO cross, uh, two plants of a GMO cross right now. But the variety that I had was called Donnie Burger, grown by a friend, which is known as a GMO back cross. It was a cross of Donnie Burger and G or, uh, Han Solo Burger and GMO. And Han Solo Burger is made up of GMO crossed with Larry OG F8, 
of uh, Skunk House Genetics. Shout out to Skunk Master Flex. He bred a OG to F8 so that he would have uh, basically a male OG to breed into things. So he bred that OG with the GMO and then basically back crossed it to the GMO for the Downy Burger. And it is super garlicky. That's like the first thing that hits me in the nose and in the mouth and it stays in my mouth for a while. I like garlic. Um, so it's really pleasant for me. It's also kind of earthy, but it's also gassy. So it's got quite a variety in the profile, but I found it to be really enjoyable. Another I one. Recently I had a, yeah, I recently had a really interesting uh, Tropicana Cookies uh, Fino that actually had a garlic uh, undertone to it. So it was like this orange garlic uh, flavor to it that my friend uh, Kush Forest grew absolutely just tremendous uh wonderful the orange was just so bold and then there was definitely that garlicky uh earthiness uh underneath i love the whole gmo thing though right so uh gmo you know it's one of those um it's one of those items that uh there's a lot of uh hype around gmo and there was a lot of uh i guess uh anecdotal uh, things around GMO where everybody was thinking it was garlic, mushroom, onion because of that funk uh, that people put off and they kept saying, oh, GMO must be garlic, mushroom, onion. But the reality is um, that the GMO is because it was, it was a funky cookies cross. Uh, but the reason why it was called GMO was because at the time when he came out with it, the Girl, Scout, the Girl Scouts were actually getting in trouble for using GMO flour. So actually genetically modified flour uh, in the cookies. So they were using GMO flour. And that's why he actually named this cookies cross GMO. It wasn't because of that garlic, mushroom, onion uh, scent and flavor that people seem to have pulled out of it. Um, so I, I find that whole thing really funny. Interesting. Yeah, I like that. Story. I was wondering why it was called GMO. And it seems like it, GMO stands for genetically modified organism. And that's how we right. It kind of grows like that. one. That's part of the reason why he said because the Girl Scout cookies were getting shit for that. And also it's a 77 or 78 day harvest time. So it's a really long harvest time, but it's a huge yielder like uh, Spartan Grown. Shout out to them right. in Mechanico. They get three yeah. plus per light and it does over 30%. It's, it's crazy. It's, it's crazy. a really amazing plant. Yeah, I grew a GMO cross that was a snake bite crossed with uh, cobra lips crossed with uh, GMO. It was called Unagi Don uh, by High Grade Herb and uh, truly tremendous yield, really thick, uh, super, super dense, uh, wonderful plants, really. GMO originally is a garlic cookies by Mamico Seeds. So just a shout out to the origin. GMO is a phenotype of garlic cookies that came from... M-A-M-I-K-O. I might be mispronouncing, but I think it's Mamiko or Mamiko seeds. And uh, Skunk Master Flex is the one who found it. It's early. It's been around for a while, actually. But uh, yep. it's gained a lot of notoriety. And I think for good reason. It's got a unique flavor, and it's pretty potent. It, it is really, the, it's a tremendous cultivar. It really is. One of the more unique varieties that I came across recently, and I've talked about it on maybe a few other shows, maybe even this one, but was the Pineapple Upside Down Cake from Humboldt mm-hmm. Seed Company. And uh, a few years ago, I actually passed on that clone in a dispensary because one, it was in Rockwool and I like was kind of above that at the time. I'm not anymore. I, I don't judge. It works. I've gotten my cherry pie cut in Rockwool and it's amazing. I grow in soil, but whatever. No, no judgments here. Anyway, that being said, I said no to it two years ago because I thought pineapple upside down cake. That's a pretty big name to try and deliver on, right? Like 
most of the time I would try stuff, I would go for like the originals because if they just said blueberry, maybe they'd hit it and have blueberry. But if they said like blueberry, banana split, strawberry, upside down cake, it's, they never hit like all those things. So you're always sort of let down. And I saw a lot of that happening in the dispensaries of these days. It was just like this thing crossed that thing across that. And you're like, you never really know what you're going to get. So I'd stick to the more original strains back then. So I saw that pineapple upside down cake and I was like, there's no way. But when I finally got a jar of it uh, from a buddy who gifted it to me, I cracked that jar and it smelled just like pineapples with like a little vanilla on the back end. And it was some really great smoke uplifting, good focus and great flavor, smoked great. And uh, my buddy actually is growing the cut now. And so I, it's like one of my daily smokes and I, I really love it, but it does smell a lot like pineapple. And uh, yeah, I've had a pineapple mosa out here uh, that was done by, I think, Boston Seed Co., maybe. But yeah, I had a poison mimosa, uh, pineapple mimosa, which was pretty, uh, pretty interesting. Absolutely. I like the pineapple turbos. But anything, uh, how, is that also a fast finisher? Because I know a lot of the Humboldt seed stuff are usually early finishers. It uh, is, allegedly. I think it's yeah. like a, in the 50-ish days, uh, yeah. mid-50s or low 60s. Um, Sergeant Pepper always talks about that part of it, but I, I'm just a big fan of the flavor. And uh, it's actually an ester. If you go onto my page, I have a save story on Jack Greenstock's Instagram. You can see it's um, a few different ones. It's like methyl hexanoate and uh, methyl butyrate, if I remember correctly. But there's a few different esters from pineapple that also are produced by the cannabis plant. And that's why when I go back to that original question that I was asked, at the beginning um, by some person who wants to remain anonymous. Do you think cannabis can make all of the smells? I started going through because people were like, oh, they're just going to whittle it down to like four or five like apples. And I was like, eh, I don't think that's going to happen because like lemon, we've got Jack the Ripper and Vortex. Lime, you have Chernobyl, Black Lime Reserve. Orange, you've got Calio, Tangy, Orange Gasm. Mango, you've got Green Crack. Banana, you have Banana OG, Primal Punch, a few other things. Pineapple, there's pineapple uh, in the pines. Uh, pineapple fields, I think, from Dynasty Genetics, the pineapple upside down cake yep. that's talked about. Yep. So I just think that's only like half of my list. Like, there are so many grapefruit smelling ones. There's raspberry, uh, raspberry sour cherries and grapes, and um, and then you get into all the fuels. And I think you know, I think those wheels are relatively useful, uh, especially one of the ones that uh, Kevin Jodry had worked on, uh, helping create. Um, and there's also some, there's also some, uh, s some, uh, comparisons as well, where certain terpene ranges tend to limit, um, you, you tend to see lower THC numbers in those types of cultivars. So the stuff that tends to be more gassy and fuely and fumy tends to be much higher in THC than the stuff that's super fruity which tends, especially if it's a super fruity one, like the Fruity Pebbles and some of the other ones, they tend to stay in that 13 to 17 range from a THC standpoint. Again, it's not about getting you high. It's just from a THC numbers. And um, Kevin Jodry went into a whole thing where a lot of those, uh, like those quadrants in the wheel of uh, terpenes uh, actually translate to certain ranges of cannabinoids existing within those plants. I definitely think there's some uh, correlation to that for sure. And he did a good job with the Golden Tarp Awards doing sort of what I was talking about, where they had like the floral category, the right. gas category, the earth, and then the fruit, I believe, right. are their categories. And so people could right. make entries and say, like, instead of just doing best indica or sativa, I think that was a much more um, 
intricate and, and specific way to break it down for the user. Because when yeah. you're just looking at this, it's like, oh, it might bring you up or bring you down. Like that's such a narrow path. But if you're sort of tipped off on like what to look for, for the people that don't have the strongest nose or maybe I think a lot of people that come from culinary backgrounds or who cook yep. or who have to do infusions and things like that with flavors and smells, perfume people that are working with scent like that, they have so many more things that they can reference to than your average person. And that's why a lot of yeah. uh, cooks that's are actually getting jobs in, in this space. I mean, that's one thing where like, uh, I think it's always very, it's very humorous to me when I watch like a video where people are describing the taste of a culinary um dish of some kind either one that they're making or something like this and they're just so non-descriptive whereas other people who are descriptors like i'll just throw it out there for those who know like if you know who anthony fantano is he's a music reviewer on youtube and he sometimes people make fun of him for tons of different things but one of the things is that like he uses such interesting vernacular when describing things like sonically it's like this and I like the heady beats and the blah, blah, blah. And it almost sounds like he's describing a, 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 a dish. And this can be a little bit difficult to really know what he means when he says some of these things for some people. But like, it feels right, maybe. You know what I mean? It doesn't maybe grok logically, but. There was a wine reviewer, um, Gary V. He's like an inspirational speaker now. But oh, funny yeah. enough, he had like wine library back in the day. And like, he would say like, oh, this one smells like a sweaty gym sock or like, this one, it's like nuts in my mouth. And like, there'd be people that would like, kind of like meme some of his videos. And, but like, I really actually got into, uh, I watched a few sommelier documentaries and I was a wine drinker for a while. Uh, not so much anymore, but I like exploring the notes of different beers and wines and things like that. Uh, much like I, I have with cannabis over the past decade or so and getting to experience sort of these things for myself. Like when I was in Ohio and it was just like, Hey, do you got some weed? And it's like, yes or no or like you had like a connector you didn't you would just pay however much they charged you for an eighth or a gram or whatever and you weren't able to pick like oh i want peach and i'm gonna go get that like afghan peach from oni or like crescendo like the peach crescendo fino from uh god who makes crescendo it's uh ethos genetics and then like dj short like that blueberry really does smell like blueberry and there's a few other different blueberries out there and grapes and blackberries and cherries and Sour Papaya. peach cobbler I have from Dynasty that I just finished also tastes like peaches. Um, that's actually some of the some of his names he comes up with. He doesn't actually name the plants until after he actually smells them and tastes them. So when he says it's a sour peach cobbler, it's because it's a sour peach. He's actually getting those terps. He's got one that's orange gym socks, um, which actually does smell like a like a locker, <laughs> like somebody's locker. Uh, Ross the really, Jeff has really, stuff like that. He always says like, yeah. uh, it smells like sweaty feet <laughs> right? and things like that. Some people love that. Like I've heard people describe like that's their favorite. Like that's to them, that is dank. And like, yep. I don't know, some more old school people, the American one, when you're looking for some dank, what are you looking for in the smell? I asked you for unique earlier, but what kind of things do you prefer and, and maybe why are you into that? I like it all, but um, yeah, I like it all. I like the fruity. I got a blueberry that I love on. And it smells like blueberry. It has like this chemical back taste. It's hard to explain. I have, I don't have a real diesel, diesel or gas smelly one, but I got, um, I have an OG Kush by Chemdog D that someone knocked off and it's unique, but it's not really gassy. It's hard to explain. 
Kush um, has a I like Kush flavor to it. You know, there's like a creaminess to Kush. It's got like its own. Like Leafly did a good job. Kush, you know, it's a Kush. They broke it down. Yeah. It's it's limonene, myrcene, and caryophylline. And they have like five or six different strains that they tested and they have like a circle and it shows how much based on like the this triangle or whatever that's spiking towards that terpene. And like all of them had the same three spikes it's, towards those. I think a lot of terpenes. it has to do with that caryophylline. Totally. Well, that's the gas. That. I think a lot of the, the undertone of gas is often carry off or caryophylline or and caryophylline yeah. I, oxide. One of my and, favorite um, cultivars I've ever come across um, is somebody who's here in San Diego uh this might be the only time it's ever been recorded that i know but this, this will be kind of neat but he called it orange tang and um uh, this guy goes by uh no dot one underscore cali on instagram number one and uh he's based here in san diego and uh it really did taste like orange like orange specifically not not some other citrus like lemon lime grapefruit pomelo it tastes like orange See, that's so cool. Like, Subcool got a uh, California orange package shipped to him back in the day when he was living in California. And uh, he said he got it to the post office and the whole place stunk like oranges so much that they didn't assume it was cannabis. So he got the package and walked out of there with a giant smile on his face like, oh, my God, I can't believe I got away with this. Because when he got home, cracked it open and it was just all full of cannabis. But they assumed that it was oranges for whatever reason. You know, it smelled that true to the specific thing. So it's really interesting to see, like, how almost exact some of these smells are if you did like the blindfolded smell some people wouldn't think like oh that's cannabis yeah that tropicana cookies is orange it's like tropicana it's like opening up the carton of tropicana orange juice it would actually be really interesting to do a blindfolded test of all of this and see i mean when they do blindfolded tests with like yogurt pee they can convince people that vanilla yogurt is strawberry flavored so it would be sort of fascinating to see how that stayed true across all of these different terpenes and cannabis. See, I, I would definitely like no suggestion before. I think that people need to have a blind, no, uh, you can't tell them ahead because then you're going to, it's like a placebo effect. You paint the picture of what they're looking for. But yeah. like, I drew a, a, I grew a strawberry daiquiri that I handed to somebody who didn't say anything to them. They asked me, did you grow this with strawberries in the soil or did you put strawberry flavoring in this? And I said, no, I just watered it with water in organic soil. No strawberries at all. That's just the breeding of that plant. Yeah, no, I yes. totally agree. I'm just thinking about that, that taste test. They gave people like three different flavors of vanilla yogurt and told them that it was strawberry and asked them like, which one was the best strawberry flavor? And they go, in, go into depth about how strawberry one was compared to the other and all this stuff. I mean, there's a huge power of suggestion with um, smells and tastes and stuff, but including yeah. that comes from our own sort of pre-analytic judgment or vision of how something is going to be. So... That's that exactly said, why though, I think it would be there strange. are Somalias, some, like some master Somalias. Some strains are just so potent, though, too. Like that Agent Orange, there's no way that even blindfolded, you wouldn't know it was an orangey smell. You know, some things are just so potent, there's no escape. Yeah, well, that that's, because the, that's because the scent is, like, really tied down to that particular compound. Sometimes it's made up, a, a taste or a flavor is made up of a bunch of different things. Right. oftentimes that's what my struggle is when i'm doing these profiles when i'm like hey this is the strawberry smell on cannabis it's like okay the primary one that's used for strawberry flavor flavorings is methyl cinnamate but then if you go through and look up like if you type in strawberry ingredients i know it's like not the exact way that it works out but there's a person who's done like little pictures that they break down all of the different things that are in there the chemical properties and it'll say like limonene and uh 
geraniol and, and there's minor levels of uh, terpenes that are found in cannabis. But if you look into how those things smell extract on their own and how they're used in perfumery and other fields, oftentimes that's not like listed as, oh, this smells like strawberry. But when you look at that methyl cinnamate, it's always like this is used for strawberry flavoring and it's got a strong uh, strawberry smell. So although that's like the main part, it's like vanilla. You can get vanilla extract that smells like vanilla, but like true vanilla extract has like 156 like uh, things that make it up. So you can fool people with the, the main ones, but the true stuff is always going to be that more um, broad spectrum. Speaking of which, I knew somebody, they're now known as E-Zone Defirm, but they were E-Zone, I just looked them up, they were E-Zone the Farm, I believe. And I guess he's now trying to be a comedian, but whatever. I knew this guy as somebody who cultivated a cultivar called um, Grape Soda, and I've talked about it before. And it really did smell and kind of taste like like some sort of carbon, you can almost smell the carbon, the carbonic acid, the carbonation almost. It was a very interesting experience. It's one of the only experiences I've had quite like that. Mimosa has that like effervescent, I think might be the term, it, yeah. in your mouth, has like a bubbly feel. And I, I don't know what that is. Maybe you're right. Maybe it is carbonic acid, but it was also a grapey. Well, in a soda maybe, but like, yeah, it's some sort of effervescence. I agree with you. So with that uh, grape in particular, I can tell the people, because this is the first one that led me down the ester rabbit hole. It's called methyl and thranolate. And that is what they use for artificial grape flavoring. It's also used as a bird repellent, and it's found in both cannabis and Concord grapes in decent levels, depending on which cultivar you're growing. And um, it also, weirdly enough, on the live plant, and I've told Matthew about this and one of the weird things about smell, when I was about six to eight, maybe 10 inches off the plant, it had sort of like a, and this is one of the things that came up in Google after, I, it smells like dead bodies or like rotting flesh. Not that I know necessarily what that smells like, but like old meat, like decaying meat. Um, if you've ever had that in the trash too long or come up on a dumpster. Like you sort of, yeah, it's got like a, a sweet smell undertone though. And that's one of the things like methylanthranolate is one of the things that I think breaks down meat as well. So that's actually one of the th reasons why I'm not a huge fan of sweet tasting meats. Generally speaking, I don't like honey ham. I don't like anything like that because it does kind of remind me of like meat's not supposed to be sweet. Do you like lobster, would, Matt? Uh, spoiled. I do like lobster. That my wife can't stand lobster because she says it's too sweet. And That's it, interesting. That's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> Some lobster is sweeter than others. I would say like South African lobster is sweeter than Maine lobster. Oh, uh, well, we go to get Maine lobster and my wife will gladly change. She likes the bodies of the lobster and she'll eat like the, the stuff inside the like carcass. So she'll trade you like the tail of her lobster, which she doesn't like for the, the body of your lobster. She's a great person to go eat lobster with. <laughs> That's good to know, actually. Back on we'll the- uh, Oh, uh, My friend moved away and a few people have been attacked by sharks and died for it, just like passing out under the- So I will never do it without a good partner. Looks- Hopefully I'm not cutting out too much, but- uh, I've never seen, I never smelled lobster smelling weed called yeah. lobster or seafood in general those smells i i can't sort of associate them with with cannabis there's, there's fishy there's smelling weed fish yeah. emulsion yeah 
There's a mushroom, there's a lobster mushroom that one of the reasons it's called that, I think, is because the flesh of the mushroom kind of smells like lobster. So there must be some kind of like sort of seafood scent. I don't really know what that is, though. Yeah, but Jack, uh, like you were saying, fish. the fishy, fishy motion is why it smells like fish, not necessarily the plant itself, right? Yeah, but I, I'm, I think in the proper setting that I think the plant is capable of producing any scent like the whole skunk thing i think maybe there was some i don't think that it was like a skunk and Maybe there was i don't know how that one came to be uh the rumors where i'm from in ohio was native americans have been growing it for years and years and years but where the skunk originated a lot of people think that it was afghani but it was like uh burnt rubber and i have a bunch of burnt rubber stuff but it's fine hey anymore but it used to be like literally like you got sprayed by a skunk yeah, I've had the burnt rubber heavy, but not it doesn't smell like a skunk. Like there was definitely cannabis that smelled like someone ran over a skunk, definitely at one point. Speaking of the ass, going back to a little uh, variety that I, I think I could share with you because my buddy Vegan Doja, he also goes by Doja DNA, D O J A DNA on Instagram. Just kind of bummed out by how the OG Kush because therapeutic variety for a lot of people you're cutting out a little bit jack oh, okay i uh i'll try computer a little I'll, I, actually i'll be back one second at the store sorry about that. hopefully that helps buddy doja day bred a variety called the del norte fuel he was in del norte california and he took a mexican city and cross that uh, OG Kush that was back crossed twice, cross that with camphor, and cross it all with glue for. And that variety, it consistently puts out extremely fuel and gas from seed. And everything, or even crossed to it, like uh, I had a punch crossed to it. And uh, it was called Velvet Punch, and, or Jack Spike Punch, I should say. And it had that really methylene I actually got. Esther Kick was smelling that grape. I thought it was like the smart. It smelled like that Smarties. If you crush it up like a powder, it gets that sort of like grapey smell. And um, it smelled like that on my plant. And I was just amazed because the flavor actually kept through. Like when you'd exhale or inhale, uh, you could just get it all the way through on the uh, smoke. So I'm very happy with that one. Hey, uh, you're still breaking up a little bit. We got most of that, I think, that Jack. Paul, uh, it looks like we're coming into the second hour. And um, I was curious if any of you guys have any topics to bring up for the remainder of the show. Well, I've been doing a lot of reading on bioelectromagnetism, but that might be too controversial for this one. <laughs> you can give us the, the clip version, Matt. We had a little bit of controversy last show, so we'll try and uh, keep it above board this show and, and highlight the positivity and the things that we at least know know to be good or feel good ourselves and believe in does anybody have any uh tips on growing autos outside for a first-time auto grower i'd start them indoors personally i'd let them get uh, a good veg going under a light maybe and then uh, put them outside in a fairly decent sized pot and let them rip 
And when you transition to outdoor, I would do a hardening off period where the first few days you take them out for an hour, maybe half an hour at a time during sunlight, bring it back indoors. And then uh, the next day, like two hours and within a maybe half a week to a week, depending on how the plant's looking, I think you could leave it out for the uh, remainder of the day and night. The cold period typically doesn't bother autos too much from what I've seen. I've seen them get snowed on in multiple people's gardens and live through it. So unless you're getting snow, I think it'll be okay. Just make sure when you bring it back inside to not put it in your garden. <laughs> That's a good tip. You don't want to bring uh, pests in, potentially. I have a question for everyone. I know I read somewhere, even in a white paper, about how when certain plants are planted next to each other or share the, the, a common root zone, that they influence each other's uh, terpenes and other things as well. Have like Because you know the story about the strawberry core. Maybe you heard the story, whether it's strawberry fields. reality. Yeah, it was grown near strawberry fields and it took on that strawberry. No, no, no. It's and... strawberry fields is the strain. Oh, strawberry okay. cough came okay, from yeah. strawberry fields crossed to a haze. Okay. I got you. So, yeah, you know the story then. So, is that, you guys know anything about that? You know the... We yeah, talked, we a talked little... about it last week. Yeah, with Spartan Grown, we were talking about maybe if it was like potentially yeah, right. like a hollow genome thing or if like rhizophagy in the soil were potentially going from one plant to the other. I'm a little bit dubious about that being what happened, but it's one of those, but it's a great example of like how things that are grown or live in association um, over time can have interesting effects like that though. Like that's the only way that you get like horizontal gene transfer, which was I think another reason that the topic came out because we were kind of talking about microbes and genes moving around and all kinds of weird, weird stuff like that. So by okay. <laughs> yeah, we got dropped off there. Well then, it looks like we will be talking about the controversial thing then. Although maybe Chad has some better questions, honestly. No. No. Well, okay. Well, they're asking about dimming. Um, yeah, Osbrock it brings up that dimming would affect uh, some of the spectrum from uh, HID bulbs, but it shouldn't affect um, the LED diodes. It could depend on the fixture, though for some of those. That was one of the, the questions that came in on chat. Um, you know, or the other thing I would say is unless you're growing seedlings, I think dimming is pretty overrated. Um, I, I think we should be planning to, to sort of run the lights at full force most of the grow. Otherwise, you might have too much of a light, but I, I mean, I think the applications for dimming largely exist in, for sort of emergency purposes and uh, for seedlings. Other than that, I don't think it's the most important sort of feature in a light. I agree with that. It. But uh, I agree with you, Doc, because I primarily use it when it's a seedling. And if I want to like slow down my veg, which is a rare occasion, but occasionally I'll pop something too soon before my stuff's going to be harvested. In this case, I did the opposite. I'm like a little late. So I'm going to get them cranking under the max light that I can as early as I can. So that way they grow a little quicker and shave some time down in the veg before I can flip. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, I mean, it makes sense. So one of the things that I like is when you have sort of smaller plants and you're ramping them up. Um, so, you know, you have seedlings and they're going into early veg and 
if you're in a period of, of sort of your tent's not full or the canopy area isn't full, you may not need as much sort of total light um, because you don't have as big of a canopy, but the plants can still use sort of the full dose of light once they're sort of past the seedling stage at that point. Um, and I think there's kind of different degrees of confusion about sort of how to ramp that up. So I like running fixtures in an array for that reason, because you can start with one and then add two as sort of the canopy expands. Um, but when you're thinking about hanging distance and when you're thinking about max PPFD that's sort of striking the canopy, um, that can get ramped up pretty early in the grow and then stay at sort of that full strength level throughout the rest of the, the grow period. So. I think it is important. I think it is important, um, especially with uh, indoor small tent grows where you have limited space and limited height, though, to keep an eye on the plants. Um, you know, I personally actually have more wattage in my tent than I need. So I run my lights only at about a 70% intensity because I found when I did run them at full, I was actually bleaching out the plants. It was just way too much light for them to process and they were sagging. So if you actually look at the posture of the plants, you know, if you run out of room to raise the lights, your other option is to actually dim them up and down to actually bring some of the intensity down. Right. Uh, I've also found that it's helpful actually to, um, depending on, um, you know, and we talked about this a little bit last week, you know, I have some difficulties keeping the rotation going and sometimes my plants stay in veg too long. And so what I found is, especially with like my mother plants and with some of my uh, clones, I actually like to run them under a lot less light altogether because they just don't need it. The mother plants, unless you're constantly taking clones, if you're just trying to keep a plant alive, it really doesn't need a lot of wattage. So in some of those cases, you know, having an extra T5 uh, hanging around is useful for those. Uh, but I do, I do think dimming can be important in some lights, especially when you get into some of those upper ranges. But I think anything less than, you know, I don't know, 600, 500, 600 watts, you probably don't need it. Um, but again, it, some of it depends on your height capabilities. Yeah, well, it's really about PPFD, um, sort of more than watts per se, but watts sure. translate into usable PPF in, in sort of a way that we can predict. Are you running HPS or are you running LEDs? All LED. Okay, so yeah, if you actually have too much light, if you actually have a fixture that produces sort of too much usable PPF for your grow space, then you may need to, to dim it. But that would have been, I, I think, sort of a, a, the decision to think about when you were buying the light. You probably over-invested oh, in light well, if that's the case, right? I, I, I was fortunate I didn't actually buy the lights. I was right. given the lights. So for me, you know, I was given 1,200 watts of light, two 600-watt units, and I'm putting them in a 5 by 5 tent, and it's just more than I need. Yeah, that's, that's probably more than you need. Um, again, exactly. it's not about exactly. the watts per se. Different LEDs get very different sort of efficiency ratings sure. in terms of how much those 1200 watts would translate into PPF. Um, right. However, 1200 watts is a lot, so exactly. I- Exactly, so that, that's why I'm saying, so in some cases it is, it is useful to have those dimming. And, and um, I have a friend actually who's a breeder and he runs most of his mother plants that he keeps around for his breeding crop under no more than like 90, 100 watts of light just to keep them going. Um, so that they don't grow too fast because they doesn't want them to grow a lot. I guess, you know, it really depends. 
That, that's an important point. So we, we are thinking when we're talking about sort of our optimal usable PPF numbers and sort of the space and all of that, we're thinking about production. And we're thinking about plants that are being grown for sort of efficient harvesting and efficient harvest rates. So we're really trying to, to sort of hit those points of peak photosynthetic efficiency, which is at about 700 micromoles of PPFD. Um, and, you know, if, if you want to run less than that, my only thing is I would just get a smaller fixture. If you have a mother room, I, I would, in, and you're buying this, you're setting this up for yourself, I, I would advise thinking about sort of the, the total usable PPF that you need for the space that you have, um, and then getting a fixture that produces that, and, and then running it at full strength, because otherwise you're, you're sort of paying for more light than you actually need in that situation. And I think that that's rare. I think most growers have less light than they need in their space, not sort of more light than they need. Um, and but I think that's a great tip that you just stated that I think a lot of people don't think about, which is get figure out the space you're going to grow in first. Yes. What is the square footage of coverage yep. that you're trying to accomplish? Don't go out and buy the light first and then yep. figure that out later. Um, I, see that, I see that a lot with new growers. They'll go out and they'll buy a light on Amazon and then they'll put it in a space that it just doesn't fit and half their plants are under the light and half their plants aren't under the light and it, it just yeah. doesn't work. So, um, I, you know, no, that, I that, agree. Was a, that was a huge golden tip that you kind of let slide out there, which is that, really understanding the footprint that you're trying to cover is super important more than figuring out your wattage first, figure out that footprint and figure out to me the best way to spread that light as much as possible. Instead of you know, this is the video that I'm working on, it's sort of exactly, yeah. looking at how coverage area affects the, the performance of a light fixture and looking at how if we increase the size of the coverage area, what does that do to the distribution of light? What does that do to the efficiency of the fixture? What does that do to our PPFD values all throughout? Um, really sort of specifically looking at those issues. And I totally agree with that, and that's how we approach this. So in, in our setup guide, our first article is all about grow tents and harvest sizes that you can sort of achieve from those different grow tents. And I, I totally agree with you that that's the right place to start. Figure out what your harvest goals are and sort of how much literal space you have in your room or your house or whatever to put these plants. Figure out what size tent you need and then our second sort of installment in that is how much light do you need to grow from indoor cannabis? And we take you through understanding the, the PPF requirements for different grow spaces to optimize the returns from those space. And then of course we have the grow light calculator to help you figure out what any individual light will actually be able to produce for you and sort of how much space that is. Um, and we got calculators there where you can enter your grow space and it will tell you the specific sort of numbers that you should be trying to, to hit on that. So check those out. I think those are, we spent a lot of time thinking about this exact issue. Do you, um, so, so interestingly though, do you make adjustments on, I guess, the shape of the lighting space by those different types of units? Um, so yeah. like an HPS goes out wide, uh, you know, metal halides go out wide, CMHs go out wide, where most LEDs are very much a straight up and down. They don't get as much of that, uh, you know, V shape 
uh, coverage, which is one of the things I like about the science LED that I use that has this little, uh, like almost a little nipple in the middle of the diode, which helps spread that light out a little bit more. Optic. Um, yeah, yeah, light actually spreads out quite a bit more than you would think. I could show that with my walls versus no walls experiment and how much the, the reflected light actually helps the center PPFD readings. Um, so certainly there's a, a good spread. In fact, the LED fixtures produce a much better distribution than the, the hid bulbs because the hid bulbs are all sort of single focal point bulbs and they require you to move them up higher in order to spread the light over a larger sort of point of the canopy. Where like the, the quantum boards or the LED bars spread the light out by their physical more points of light more points of light more points of light you're better off yeah and um yeah to answer your question we have a whole i developed a whole protocol for how we determine test area size um and it's it, it's interesting sort of combination between the the commonly available grow area sizes that growers are actually going to be putting these lights into and the form factor of the, the fixture itself. So we test in both a square shape and in a rectangular shape um, at fairly common dimensions for the official sort of numbers, the comparable numbers. But I'm doing a lot of sort of secondary tests in alternative shapes now, just because I'm really interested in seeing how all of that plays out. Um, this video that I'm working on, I'm putting a lot of work into it. So I hope everybody enjoys that. But thinking about things that Very you cool. not think about, which is, for example, one interesting little relationship. When you move into a larger space for a light, you can hang the light closer to the canopy. Um, and when you put that same fixture in a smaller space, you have to hang it higher. So the hanging height of a fixture is entirely dependent on the, the distance between the fixture to the reflective walls. Um, and if you increase the distance between the fixture and the reflective walls, there are going to be fewer reflected photons sort of arriving back into that center region, and it's going to make the PPFD go down there so you can lower the fixture. That's cool. Osbucket420 uh, asks, does that light calculator work for a large multi-light area, i.e. commercial style grow? Yeah, so the grow light calculator is really based on um, the, the numbers for that fixture in its appropriate coverage area. Um, and this is another thing that I'm getting into in that video because I did two of the SP3000 lights in this test. When you run lights in an array, you increase the efficiency of the, the fixture. Um, and it's by a not inconsiderable margin. If you can imagine um, two, say four by two foot grow tents that were side by side, sort of the butted up against each other and you had you know, appropriate lighting in each of those four by two tents and then you just drop that wall between them. Um, so if you drop the wall, what you're doing is you're, you're giving photons from each fixture more of a chance to hit plants and less of a chance of sort of being reflected off the walls. And whenever the photons are reflected, they lose a little in that reflective losses. Um, so running fixtures, two of them together like that, side by side, um, over a comparable space, you might think that you just sort of get twice as much light in that situation, but you actually get more than twice as much. You get like 10% more than twice as much. So as you move into sort of an array, you increase the efficiency that you get from each fixture. Does that make them 110% uh, more efficient? 
No, it's just that in the smaller space, you're losing more photons to reflection. And, oh, no, that makes sense. And in the larger space, you're not losing as many photons to reflection. So it's not that you're actually sort of creating photons out of thin air. Um, and this is why it's really important to understand the difference between the total PPF, which is the amount of light the fixture can produce, and that's what's measured in an integrating sphere, and the usable PPF, which is the amount that actually arrives to the canopy. Um, and if you increase the canopy that's underneath the, the fixture, you're just giving it sort of a larger target. Um, therefore, there's going to be less reflected losses, and you're going to end up with a larger usable PPF or a higher usable PPF. That makes that another reason. Yeah, that's another reason why LEDs are more efficient than uh, traditional HID bulbs because LEDs are going directly at the plant. There's no lost uh, light going directly up against reflectors as opposed to HID bulbs and everything. Every half the light was lost, uh, yeah. depending on how you had the bulb shaped, uh, because everything was relying on the reflectors on that other half of the light. Except for those people that hung those bare bulbs in the middle of their rooms. I would never uh, advocate it because people have burnt the shit out of themselves walking past them. But they're pretty efficient, actually, when you do stuff oh, yeah. like that. I've seen people pull out massive yields back in the day. Oh, so yeah. don't ever underestimate grower oh, no, ingenuity. Great side lighting, too. Great side lighting, also. <laughs> it's funny, Mango <laughs> uses LEDs as his side lighting, but he uses HIDs oh, yeah. up top. So he has yeah. little walls that he can like lower up and down and like these garage mango, mango, Mango's on a different level. That uh, garage setup with the lowering and the raising and the lowering and all that stuff is an amazing setup. Um, that guy is, is truly unbelievable. He's a craftsman who's been around cannabis for a long time and knows how to make it produce at a, you know, high quality and, and he knows how amount. to build, he knows how to build a really nice facility. He really does. Um, and his automation skills are unbelievable. Practice makes perfect, I guess. <laughs> Absolutely. That being said, I want to give Kyle Predicative Breeding a chance to talk a little bit. Earlier we were talking about smells, and I know you grew one that most people would never even dream of growing indoors, which was the Corolla. And I think you said it took like 16 or maybe 18 weeks, something crazy like that. And I was curious if there was any uh, unique smells or effects or just anything about that that made it uh, have worthwhileness to you to take it that long. Yeah, so I went on like a whole land race uh, regimen for a good year. Basically, that's how long it took to, to for the whole process. But uh, yeah, no, the the Corolla wasn't that bad. The uh, the Highland tie was uh, like 26 weeks or something like that. I still think I harvested it premature, to be honest, just because it was just like uh, taking up like valuable real estate. Because um, you know I don't have like a facility or anything like that. But yeah, I mean all those all those land races, man, or heirloom, however you want to call them. Um, you know, they're just, uh, it's just all caryophylline, man, just all peppers. Like there wasn't a, there like wasn't much variation, which I thought was kind of weird. Um, but maybe at the same time, it's kind of natural. Um, but yeah, it was just really interesting to, to be able to, to do that. And in, in, as a breeder standpoint, or even as a grower, because you get, when you start from the beginning, you're able to see, you know, when you look at what's basically going on in the modern day, you're able to see like which, which route they took and, 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 you know, where, and basically what avenues these, these, as time went on and through generations and generations and how we got to this point um it's really cool like but uh the corolla in particular had like a legitimate christmas tree uh look like it looked exactly like a pine tree uh in in a perfect in a perfect way for sure and it's just really cool to, to to experience all that stuff and uh yeah i mean the high was completely different or the effects if you want to call it that uh just a very deep gandhi type conscious 
you know, like basically if you like close your eyes, you can see the whole world as a whole, like, and you could just understand like people's emotions and then everyone's feelings. It's just like this really spiritual type feeling. Uh, uh, just really interesting to kind of just get involved with that. I still have tons of <clears throat> tons of those seeds. Uh, if anybody's looking for some, just feel free to reach out to me. I mean, I don't put them on the website because they're not like worked or anything, but I, I have plenty of uh, all that uh, Highland Thai and Kerala seeds if anybody's interested. Would you guess that there's something in there more than the beta caryophylline that is uh, maybe leading towards those more mind expanding and, and soaring high effects? Because there's stuff in hazes granted take up to like 16 weeks and there's like nl5 haze cross you can get down to like nine or ten weeks maybe 11 on some of them that do have a fair amount of uh, spiciness even super silver haze has some pretty spicy phenos that finish around 10 weeks but uh they might have an uplifting high but it's never really and, and i've had some old like even mexican sativa type stuff that gives you those really uh crazy soaring highs so i'm curious kyle if you think that there's maybe something more in there than just that terpene that might be taking so long to be produced in that uh, 16 or 22, however long week period. I mean, I, I personally do. I mean, I'm sure, you know, with lab tests, you can kind of see what's going on in there, but I also don't think that we have all of the answers for that yet either, you know, but um, yeah, I mean, so like those, those, that, that flower at the, at the end of the, uh, you know, come harvest time when I harvested, like there wasn't much trichome production at all, but like you just got like so it was super high, but you weren't like, it wasn't like a sativa high. It was just like this very long lasting. It's just so hard to explain. Yeah. It's completely different than anything modern. It's, it's a different feeling. It's like a different high. It's a different, uh, just different, so many different ways, but yet there's like no THC. So it's definitely, I feel like there's something, there's properties in there that are doing something else uh, for sure. Uh, so I would, I would definitely say yes to that. Yeah. I wonder I if there's maybe THCV or, or some other minor cannabinoid or, flavonoid or ester terpene it sounded like matthew you had uh, something to chime in there just a minute ago um no nothing important oh, okay sorry <laughs> the american one you've been quiet over there what's going on man how you what you smoking on what you doing i'm just chilling right now uh, i hope everyone had a great fourth of july um what am i smoking oh i was smoking on some time wreck uh, that's another one. It has a unique flavor and smell that I can't, there is nothing else in, that I've come across that has that smell or flavor. So that's one reason why I keep that playing around. Um, I think it might be sandalwood, but I don't know what sandalwood smells like. So that's a possibility. Because people have used that term, you know, and or um, it's not really like an incense smell, but I could see how it could be part of like that kind of smell, you know? I think that um, if you ever have a chance, like, buying essential oils can be a good way to explore some of these smells. Cause like people had referenced patchouli for a while and I'd actually smelled patchouli, but I never knew what it was. And people would say like, Oh, hippies smell like patchouli or this and that. And like, I never knew what it was. So I bought an essential oil that smells like it. I don't particularly like it, but now I have that as the reference and a bunch of different essential oils really uh, give you those much clearer references if you yeah, enjoy the idea. smells of cannabis. Because then you'll know, like, oh, that's that's what sandalwood is supposed to smell like, or that's what at least people in perfume and uh, even, like, the food industry. I smelled somebody's, uh, one of the kids I work with had a bar, and it smelled so much like lemon, and I was like, this smells just like the lemon essential oil that I have my house sure enough i looked on the back it said lemon essential oil was part of the flavoring so 
uh, you can definitely start picking up on some of these things. And I think that's also, you get, um, you start getting into a lot of the um, additions and changing of flavors when you start getting more into the extract side of things. Um, because I do know that a lot of the extraction processes actually kill the terpenes and then they go back in and add the terpenes back. Uh, if you've ever had uh, like the diamonds and sauce, the sauce is all terpenes. The diamonds is actually where the cannabinoids are. Um, because that process itself in processing and stripping all those things out, they actually destroy the terpenes, which are one of the first things to go. Uh, they're one of the first things that cook off. They're one of the first, they're the most volatile uh, part of the plant, so to speak. Um, and so there's a whole industry around actually just putting those terpenes and flavors back in uh, for all of those uh, vape pens and all of that other stuff. Um, it, it, there's, uh, I actually saw, I can't remember if it was a Canacon or a Nican, uh, but there was a guy there who actually had in front of him, he just had a table full of terpenes and you could bring up a bud to him and he would smell the bud and then he would basically mix a couple of these terpenes together and almost be able to replicate the smell that that bud was putting out based on what he was picking up and his combination of those, not of those terpenes that he had in jars uh, all out in front of him. And uh, he could do it within like a couple of minutes. It was crazy. And that was basically what his job was. He got paid to do that for a lot of the extract companies. I will say that um, esters are often more volatile and some terpenes. Myrcene is one of the lowest that I know that evaporates off or it has vapor pressure at 68 degrees but to vaporize it it's a much higher temperature so what that means is like vapor pressure um if you have like a water bottle sitting in the sun and you've got a cap on it and there's a little bit of air in that water bottle sometimes when it heats up there's more vapor pressure when the temperature goes up you open up that cap and you get that tsk, sometimes it'll even blow off the cap well with terpenes there's no cap on your actual trichome it's just a waxy sort of layer so if it hits that temperature and it's not in a sealed environment, you're going to lose it like in certain drying uh, situations if it's over a certain temperature. But when they're doing it in labs, what they've started to do is for cannabis-derived terpenes, they extract the cannabis terpenes first because it's in a glass tube or whatever. As long as it doesn't go over the uh, vaporization temperature, which is like 311 for pinene, like much, much higher than the vapor pressure, than, which are like in 60 to 80 degrees range. Um, they can capture the cannabis terpenes that way and then use real cannabis terpenes in their cannabis concentrate, which some people do. And it also prevents your THC oil from coming out with color because when the terpenes get heated up and oxidized, they'll turn your THC clear oil. Pure THC has no color. So it'll turn it usually yellow or amber or orange. But yeah, it's a very interesting process. And I think... Um, there are some studies still to be done on like whether or not the terpenes change in any way when they undergo heat and being extracted and then reintroduced. Because a lot yep. of people say a terpene is a terpene is a terpene, but some people argue, well, it's better if it's derived from cannabis or even that same plant and then put back with the ratios that of fresh cannabinoids from concentrate. It's fresh from concentrate. Yeah, I love. I saw a, I saw a graphic <laughs> that was like all of like it was like what the different versions of like cannabis extracts are. 
and they use like or or just canvas material in general and they use like oranges as their stand-in and they even went to like edibles and that sort of a thing too it's pretty funny yeah it's um, so so there's that. And then I also know that, you know, I think a lot of um, a lot of the people who win a lot of the cups and events uh, from the extract category, especially the solventless ash, uh, a lot of them are actually doing combinations of different plants together to make up those combinations. I mean, my friend Jen Doe won with a strawberry banana ash that she had made. And uh, it was actually a combination of two plants uh, because when she was done with the washing, she just didn't have enough material, I think, at the time. So she ended up combining them um, and she ended up getting a completely different, uh, something completely different than what she had originally. um, Hota, this is a change of pace, but GR420 Community Videos asks, anyone on the panel have experience uh, with the cannabis leaf fermented plant juice or the high value element that it contains? And I... uh, FPJ is hard to do with cannabis uh, because cannabis leaves are so dry. Um, so it, it's one of, it's not necessarily a great material to use. I think the other thing with, um, I, I guess it really depends on where you grew the cannabis too. Uh, part of the reason that you do FPJs is you're trying to gather some of the um, natural mineral uptake and um, of these plants. That's why you use things like comfrey and uh, nettle uh, because they're bioaccumulators. Uh, cannabis is a bioaccumulator, so I guess if you grew it outside. Um, you'd probably have to add a lot of extra sugar because it's such a dry material, but I think uh, it's, it's a difficult material to try to make an FPJ out of. Um, I wouldn't necessarily use it if you're doing it in your indoor grow because you're not, you're not really going to get the same benefits you would if you were doing it outside where you're additionally gaining some of the um, natural bacterial and biological material that's on those plants. That's also why you try to harvest those things in the morning. Uh, when you're going to do an FPJ, you try to harvest in the morning because it's going to tend to have more uh, dew, more moisture, uh, more of those bio, more biological activity on the plant than later in the day when it has dried out more because of the sun. So there you go. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. They, they, I never did it, but they do say collect it when the dew is still on the leaves. Because that, I tried it once and I failed because it was too dry, like you're saying, Hoda. But um, then I asked the person who I like stole the idea from. They're like, yeah, you know, you're supposed to do it. collect it from outside, like you're saying. It has natural bacteria in the air and stuff on the dew that's on the leaves already. The leaves are wet, so you collect them all up and then do it. Might help. I don't know. I never uh, right. It's not. I, I would just chime in that I bet it's not just for the moisture content, although the moisture content would be highest right before the the dawn. Um, but it's also for the mineral content that's in the leaves. There's a really interesting study that they did um, that I got into for thinking about the applications of it for cannabis. But on different times of day, they would harvest spinach. And then they ran um, analyses on the, the mineral content of the spinach. And they found that there's significant differences um, based on harvesting it in the pre-dawn morning versus in the, the peak of the day. Um, mm-hmm. 
and, and there's actually differences there for, for different types of plants. So a lot of, of um, plants, depending on sort of what you're trying to harvest from them, um, but a lot of those kinds of plants, a lot of fruits are harvested um, in the, the pre-dawn or in the early morning, if it's possible to do that, if there's sort of a market demand for that. So like wine grapes and stuff like that are often harvested at like 3 to 6 a.m. in the morning with people with like headlights and all of that out in the fields. Um, so yeah, there's definitely more, there, there's a lot of things I think that, that could be why you would want to harvest that right before the, the dawn. I would think with wine grapes, especially because you've also got all those natural yeasts that you need to protect uh, that you're using as part of the process. So. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, and, and I think that that's a, a good example of a crop that's sort of like cannabis that it, it is worth investing the labor in things like that where possible. It's not a large, I mean, wine grapes almost are, but they're still worth investing the labor in. Um, but it's not like harvesting corn or alfalfa or something like that. Right. I have a question for the panel. Has anybody come across cheese smelling cannabis, cultivars, or anything that the different varieties of cheese? In Before we get into that, I wanted to respond to the point that Hoda right. made about <clears throat> plant juices. And that's to say that um, I, I actually agree with that, especially with regards to like the microbes you're trying to get. I'm curious though that, and we don't have to get into it, whether or not the use of cannabis leaves might um, have a positive effect potentially by having microbes that are already associated with cannabis, but some of those microbes might be pathogens. And I'm reminded that like um, with the do thing of gutation and how coronatine, which is a compound that Pseudomonas syringae makes or a particular cult of uh, cultigen, um, it is actually a, it, it, it creates a, it's a, it works like a hormone and it makes the plant open its stomata and the bacteria can just go right into the plant. So it's interesting to consider how that can happen with gutation or also just like uh, the introduction of maybe a microbial active juice. Anyways. I think Brandon would be a good one to talk about this. Maybe if he comes on later tonight or next week, we'll have to bring this topic back up because I know he's been doing some like uh recycled waste with the green leaf of cannabis and using that as a biostimulant, I believe he refers to it as. Yeah, I think um, you can definitely make ferments and, and things like that. And I think more towards the um, Jadam type approaches, I just think from an FPJ standpoint, there's better materials that you can use um, that are readily available. I mean, most of them are outside. So I made FPJ out of dock which grows wild, right? Just go outside, you know, I had huge leaves of dock all spring were all popping up around my yard. And, and it's a good, again, things like nettle, comfrey, uh, horsetail, mugwort, they're good bioaccumulators. They bring a lot of nutrients and minerals into themselves. And so, um, but they also, again, they're a little bit more moist. Uh, they're uh, softer bodied. They're not as woody and stemmy mm, as a cannabis one. plant is. And I think that does also make a difference. I definitely agree with you on that. Earlier, Hotel, you were nodding yes when I was talking about cheese cultivars. So I don't know if uh, you wanted to maybe share some of your experiences with that because some people haven't come across it, but I know that's one to be definitely strong. Oh, absolutely. The there's definitely there's definitely some some very very much so some cheese. Uh, stuff out there. Um, I'm trying to remember. There, there's a couple of, there's a couple of uh, cheddar or cheddar 
crosses going around New England because, uh, you know, we don't use the R here in Massachusetts. It's, it's kind of a Cheddah. So it's uh, C-H-E-D-D-A-H. Uh, so there's a couple of those crosses. I think maybe Plymouth County might have uh, a cheese cross there. There's another one I have. I'll have to look at my list. Uh, but there's definitely some cheese ones. I've, I've smelt almost like a blue cheese um, and like a cheddar cheese uh, type of a smell. Um, mac, by the way, is not a cheese, right? It's not mac and cheese. It's <laughs> magic alien cookies, back to the cookies again, right? So mac one is not mac and cheese. It's more a cookie. They did cross. make a mac and cheese cross, though. Yes, they did. Yes, they did. And shout out to the Exodus crew. We've got some uh, UK growers here in the chat, GR420 uh, community videos, and we have some other uh, UK listeners, I know, from our analytics and just from talking to people in the chat. But the skunk number one phenotype that's known as UK cheese is uh, found by the Exodus crew. And it was a seed they popped of skunk one that smelled strongly of cheese. And uh, I think it's more of like a funky cheese, like a rotten cheese, but it's extremely right. potent. Skunk number one, uh, for those who don't know, does not have a CBD synthase. So it always produces 0.0, .0 CBD, which is pretty cool uh, for those who like the high THC varieties. Uh, if you're looking so, for the more full spectrum effects, so it might not be for you, but it is pretty psychoactive and highly potent, usually 20 plus THC every time I've seen it tested. Relic has a cheese, a Bubba cheese. Uh, Relic is Dynasty, Professor P. Uh, so Relic has one called Bubba Cheese, um, and that was actually a freebie they were giving out. Um, I'm, I'm going through my list. Um, I actually have that twice, so I must have gotten those freebies twice from them. Uh, there was another one. I know I had another cheese cross in my list here somewhere, but um, there's, definitely, there's definitely some cheese uh, smells out there. It's that more funky kind of moldy earthy kind of tone like we were talking about earlier um you know more of those uh really really umami type smells i guess it's not uh, fruity it's definitely not fruity it's definitely not gassy um it's sharp it's not spicy but it's sharp it's interesting i tend to really like those smells in in like cheese <laughs> for example real cheese so I haven't really had that experience that much. I'd love to try it. Upstate. I just like hearing Hotha That's talk it. about smells. I mean, I could never describe smells and flavors <laughs> like this. So cheers to you, buddy. Well, I mean, I thank you. Well, I, I come from the food You and Jack are really sensitive and on the point of smells and flavors. And I think Matt and I are just sort of along for the ride. Yeah, I, I, I come from the food business. I grew up in the food business, so I've always been around that. Um, wines also, wines really, really interesting. I spent a lot of time because I was in the food business going to wine shows and wine tastings. And, uh, again, it's another, um, if you're a soil geek, like I am, uh, wine is a really, really interesting place to spend time too, because all of the wine vinters are very, very much in tune with their terroir, their environment the soil, the side of the hill, the yeah. type of rain they got that year, how yep. it affected each of those crops, how it gave different flavors, and then how those wines had different expressions from year to year. The same grape yep. grown on the same hill by the same people, aged in the same barrels, has a different flavor. Yep. Because right, the conditions, the yeah. the conditions were different. So, um, 
I did, uh, I have spent a lot of time trying to understand those things. When you do learn about wine, they do put different types of things in front of you uh, so that you can smell those like apricots and um, different types of things that you can smell, peaches, right. uh, cucumbers, uh, different things that you can smell. Um, grapefruit is, is a common one. Uh, just different things. Peppery is another uh, flavor and taste that comes out, especially in things like um, some of the some of the heavier reds. Uh, definitely have more of a peppery flavor to them. So this um, is what yeah, we gotta I, do. I definitely... We gotta get these testings and these tastings, like they do in wine, right? For such a long right. time, the cannabis has just been sort of you know behind the curtain and under the table and all of that. Yeah. Um, but I, I think that there's this similar sort of market could certainly to develop and maybe we could deal with a little bit less sort of of the perception of snobbishness, but um, yeah. I, I think it would be interesting to, to sort of get that deep. And I totally agree with you about sort of the viticulture and, and those being the, the growers, I think, that we have the most affinity with. And, and sort of approach our projects with the similar kind of uh, goals and level of attention and all of that. So yeah. I don't. Think I, I have a know. question for Hoda. <laughs> oh, go ahead. Is there something that they um, do in between tastes to clear the palate or even clear your nose? Is there a way to clear your nose out too? Well, they do. They do. I mean, you usually. Um, so first of all, when you when you're at a wine tasting, you don't drink and swallow the wine you taste the wine and you spit the wine because as you drink you lose taste uh the alcohol has a numbing and a deadening effect too um and it also it, it because it kind of kills some of your inhibitions you're not necessarily as uh as likely to critique something as hard as you would if you're drunk <laughs> and in a great mood okay right? so this but, is the um, problem but, with the analog to cannabis then right because how right. are you going to sample it i mean what is this like the, the pull of bill clinton on it then you eat, you eat, <laughs> usually you eat, you eat crackers uh very plain crackers and you drink water you want something that is flat and opposite of what you're doing and uh, um wine and food are usually paired that because of that, the reason that you pair a wine with a dish is partially because the flavors go together, but it's also because the wine is supposed to, in some ways, continue to cleanse the palate in a way that the food continues to taste the way it did with that first bite. There's um, an art and a science to the way that they put those together so that your, your dish continues to taste really, really good throughout that dish. And that's why you switch the wines. It's not so much about um, the flavors going together. It's also some of it has to do with cleansing that palate. So I agree, it's tough to do that when you're smoking um, because there's a certain level of coating. That I don't think you would smoke on the tour. I just want to jump in. I think um, yeah. it'd be a good idea to have them do a scent tour where maybe sure. they could smell different jars and they have like a joint that they get handed right at the beginning. Hey, you get to pick or at the end, they go in through and smell all you of them and they say dry, dry. Yeah. Or even like in the perfume industry, they use um, pepper so oftentimes or, or coffee yep. that they hold yep. up to your nose to give you a Coffee's sort of neutralizing. Coffee and then, beans is also another one that's used to neutralize smells. Um, 
Shout out to the chat. They said Breeder, Breeder Steve should come on and uh, talk about some of the wine stuff. He actually went from cannabis to wine. And then his first year ever growing grapes for wine, he won an award because uh, he was just such a good organic cultivator and had a good, true sense of being in touch with the soil. That's so, pretty amazing. Um, I was going to say that uh, among the culinary flavors, I definitely love how like <clears throat> sort of a fatty, sort of savory thing can be cut with like acid, like wine, for example, or vinegar or something acerbic and um uh you know i i have a very big love although i don't always smell them or i don't always sense them i do have a very big love and perhaps it's for this reason of like descriptive uh words and i love you know me i love all the all the 50 cent words out there so i love that kind of stuff i, I love, love hearing words. descriptions words i think beautiful. it's important to to use people like you and dr mj though who have like a, a weaker nose perhaps or maybe just for whatever reason you're not picking up the smells the same as somebody who's more sensitive or, or just accustomed to different experiences like a cook or from the perfume industry or something like that um it's good to hand something to you because if i'm like breeding it or if i'm growing it to see like where my quality stands up if i'm really sensitive to it and i can pick up on all the little subtleties that's fine and good but if nine out of ten people can't smell any of those things and they just think it smells like general cannabis then like they're just going to look at me like I'm a crazy person. So it's nice when you have something that's so distinct that somebody who even has like a weak nose and a poor ability uh, to describe maybe um, to sm yeah. uh, smell, they can be like, oh, wow, that actually really does smell sour or sweet or earthy or gassy. That's true. But I also, just from my experience with my wife, I would say that she can appreciate some things, some flavors and smells and stuff that I really just don't sort of appreciate so i think it may be still worthwhile pursuing subtler flavors and smells um but yeah i think from hearing matt's uh, approach to sort of seasoning his food i'm the same way with sort of cannabis terpenes i want you to hit me with like a sledgehammer of them so i can really feel it um i want to taste it for like an hour afterwards like <laughs> in my gums you know yeah, like you have to almost overwhelm me. So that might not be your goal with the strain that you're breeding, right? You might want to be sort of appealing more to my wife and giving her subtle notes of, of you know, different things. Just to jump back a little bit, uh, I really wanted to give some credit to the wine connoisseurs and sommeliers where it's due because I watched a documentary about the master sommeliers. There's a guy whose last name is Dame and they call it daming it because he can smell a wine, tell you what area of the world it's from and which yeah. year it was it's grown crazy. in. And he's done it consistently across several different blind taste tests. So it's yeah. not like BS. Like there's those, only like 50 or 100 people on a different level. Yeah, in the world. Um, and it's I like, also, I think there's also been some science behind that, that in general, women tend to have a more sensitive smell ability than men. I would tend to believe it perhaps, but uh, I think it, it's always uh, individual to individual. And I do know that, to, to generalize again, I did just see an article that uh, I've seen posted a few different times, but saying that men are less sensitive to THC because we have like more receptors for it or something like that. And women are a little bit more highly sensitive because they have less receptors and they get basically maxed out a little bit sooner. Uh, not to say that women can't build tolerance. My wife could smoke me and most people under the table, but uh, I think it's just a little bit more difficult for them for whatever reason to take the same doses as uh, men on average. And this is just from like a white paper where they observed it. Yeah, I think that's kind of interesting to see sort of the dimorphism there uh, physiologically. Yeah, I, don't have anything specific on this, although I would say 
that our, our sexual dimorphism is often less pronounced than we think it is. You would uh, know, wouldn't you? Secondary things, but there are some important differences for, for sure. I, I heard yeah, a genetics a professor point. say that they don't test their students for XX or XY because so often it doesn't align with, um, they say as often as somebody has red hair, somebody is not aligned with their chromosomes. So like you might be a XY, but present as female, even though you have like traditionally male sex or gender like if they look at your blood they would assume that you're a male but sometimes there's like things with circumcision that happen and uh, there's also intersex people where they're like xxy i believe they're born with both sets of genitalia so the human uh, species is very fascinating as well as cannabis so just yeah guyandruff uh what how do you pronounce that Guyan, guyandrophomism? Well, well, you're getting a word that I can't pronounce. It's pretty rare. No, I, I lean to you for the big words normally. So if if you can't pronounce it, none of us got a good chance. I don't think. If I were if I were reading it, perhaps if I was reading, but but it's when you have um you have a sort of a sort of intersex sort of situation. It's very much um it definitely happens in arthropods a lot. Um and yeah, that's just it's just it's part of the part of the animal and human and life condition right everyone's it's a lot more gray than black and white like uh, yes. many of us were raised to think at least i was i thought it was boy and girl you know xxxy and that's just the way it was but it took human sexualities in college and you learn a lot about how uh, it's not so simple yeah yeah and how then that what you're really talking about there is sex and sex doesn't map perfectly onto what we consider gender either um, and sort of when we're thinking about the difference between men and women in those cases. Um, but we're, we're deep into sort of um, human sexuality and, and social science, it seems, more than cannabis. Far off where we need to be. <laughs> we went a little to the left field. But I will say that in general, there are some cultivars that I can trim in the room with my wife. And there's other ones she just makes me get out. <laughs> Take is it because she's repulsed? <laughs> is it just the amount of smell, or she's just actually turned Certain, off by the smell? Some of both. Some of both. Uh, usually, it tends to be ones that she doesn't like. She doesn't like gassy stuff. Uh, we have slightly different uh, likes as well with the type of cannabis that we like. I think most people are like that. There's different things that different people like, um, and you know, it, it, you need to. I think most people should write down, um, should keep a log, you know. Uh, I had this thing and it tasted kind of lemony and it had this type of an effect on me so that over time you can kind of develop a better understanding of what are the flavors and profiles and things that you like so that when you look for something to buy from a seed standpoint, or even if you're going to a dispensary or even going to your friend and saying, Hey man, you got anything that's got grape? Cause I love grape. I'm not big on lemon, um, but I like orange. So some citrus is okay, but I really prefer grape and cherry. Um, I'm not as big on the rocket fuel, but I love a good sour. Um, and skunk is good for me as well. I mean, there's, I know because I've been doing, you know, I've, tried so many different types but i think it's super important for people to learn what are the things that they appreciate um and try to develop enough of a, a language so that they can express their likes and dislikes even if they're at that very basic um at a higher you know more basic i like fruit i don't like fruit i like gas i don't like gas 
um, so that they can get more what they enjoy. Um, you know, you don't want to grow something that you're not going to enjoy smoking. You want to grow something that's going to connect with you, that you're going to really enjoy, that's going to be meaningful to you. Um, I've grown I agree some so stuff much with I didn't really like, and I just give it away. I totally agree with uh, both being generous and giving it away and also writing stuff down when it works for you and you like it, because then you can go hopefully and find it to grow it for yourself. Or even if you're looking for it from a dispensary or whatever, I used to do like three eighths or, or grams a week or whatever I could afford from the dispensary. And I would just get like their best indica, best sativa and best hybrid. That's how it was labeled at the time. And eventually I started realizing like, oh, I like blueberry and blueberry hybrids and things like that and Jack Herrera and a lot of those different crosses. But until you get those experiences uh, where you have like the actual name on the label and you get to bring it home and, and smell it and try it and smoke it and see how it works for you, it can be really difficult for people out there in the red state. So I feel those people that are just getting a bag with no label on it and saying, here's what you get, you know. So uh, definitely that's a big reason to grow your own for sure. And I think it also helps you when you don't recognize the names, right? Because the names are ridiculous. Let's face it. There are thousands and thousands and thousands of cultivars and strains out there that have ridiculous lineage that only uh, a very small handful of people actually truly understand. I mean, we were babbling through some of it earlier. Um, it, it, what's really more important is being able to understand some of those things so that you can try to find comparable products, uh, things that fall within that same range. Um, again, going back, I'm, I keep going back to Kevin Jodry today. It just seems to be the thing. But uh, one of the things that Kevin was trying to push for was trying to come up with a different type of, I guess, numbering or coding or something that allowed people to not necessarily, to be able to find similar products that were in a range of flavors and effects, but were also grown within similar terroirs so that they would be more likely to get closer to those effects and feelings that they enjoy. I think in like Humboldt and places where they're cultivating outdoor and even in greenhouse and things like that it's a little easier he's got such a broad network where he gives oh, the people the clones and he knows where they're growing yeah. and you can connect patients and say like hey he runs one of the largest greenhouses that supplies most of the commercial growers so yeah wonderland greenhouses <laughs> but yeah i agree i agree absolutely but that's i think that was also part of it was um trying to support these local groups so um you know you could have a group up in Maine, for instance, that are all growers who grow in Southern Maine, uh, that all grow in a similar type of style. They're part of the same uh, collaboration or the same cooperative or group. And um, you can maybe if this one breeder, this one farm that you really brand that you really liked isn't in stock that week, well, we also have this brand that's from that sun-grown group out of Southern Maine. And if you like a grape flavor, here's something that's a little bit more grape. Um, so just trying to allow those groups to help better represent themselves, but also bring together some ability to share similarities and commonalities. 
It's funny because uh, on the West Coast, gas just seems to be super popular. Like I worked at a little mom and pop delivery service. There's just like the owner, his wife, and then myself. But we had like one to 200 patients depending on time of the year. And this one guy, he would literally say like, I only want it if it's gas. And he was the yep. only patient that we ever showed up to. And I like, it was a little gassy, but it wasn't super gassy on one of them. And I was a little worried. And sure enough, like two different occasions, we showed up with a, a bag for him and he refused it. He had the money on him. He wanted flour or whatever, but it just wasn't to his standard. And so, I mean, certain people are really just looking for a specific thing that works for them. And I respect that because as a medical patient myself, like only certain things work. I don't like a lot of the Jack crosses, but Jack Herrera straight up really works for me for the daytime. And like I had a delivery service poll like, oh, uh, you ordered Jack Herrera. We were out of that, but we got this black Jack. And I was like, well, that's actually not what I want, like, unfortunately. And I, like, I try it sometimes, but often just be really let down. And uh, I think it's awesome now that we live in, or some people are living in places where they have the option to find a variety and know the name of it and have it be uh, adequately tested and safe for them to use. So I think it's great to see the way the market's moving. Kyle, uh, shout, throwing back all the way to the beginning, uh, you were talking a little bit about how you had something coming out to California. Uh, I think it was by way of, was it Hendrix Farm? Uh, which part of California are they in and, and where could people get their hands on those clones if uh, when they're available? Yeah, so um, I guess not to make it super long and drawn out, uh, I'd say like eight months ago or six months ago, uh, there's a nursery in California, again, like you just mentioned, uh, Hendrix Farm um, had reached out to me on um, either Instagram or Twitter, and they said that they've just been following me for a while, and they just really appreciate, um, you know, basically, like, you know, I'm not just, like, grabbing two beautiful girls and crossing them and then, like, hucking seeds out there. Uh, you know, I just kind of, like, take time into what I'm doing and ensuring, um, you know, the consumer has the best experience they can have and uh, just everything else. So, basically, he, uh, you know, he inferred that if he wanted to, if i wanted to basically give him one of my special mothers that i have and um you know that he would uh test it for viral or pathogens and if everything was clean um and then he grew it out and then if it was what it is and it is what it is because they are good you know it's a good you know um that they would basically distribute them to every facility that they work with and uh you know and they only deal with like bougie type uh you know like just like high-end people so i was just like a super blessing that this guy even reached out to me uh, so I, I shipped one plant. I, I don't know the town he lives in, to be honest. You'd have to Google it, but it is Hendrix Farm. But uh, I, I tried shipping one plant, and because everyone kept telling me that it was, like, cold uh, in Midwestern, you know, basically, like, four months ago, I put, like, a whole bunch of uh, uh, body warmer packets in there, like, the, the kind that you open up and shake to keep your hands warm. Well, I, I think I stuffed too many in there because when he got it, they were, like, wilted and dead. So I think I, it was just way too hot. But I, I just sent another one in, uh, like, two months ago, and uh, he got it. I actually built it myself. I built my own uh, clone shipper, which is uh, kind of ironic, and you would laugh if you saw the picture of it. But uh, it made it there, and uh, yeah, I mean, as of right now, where we stand, he's growing it out. Uh, he just took a leaf sample to the, the lab to see if it has any kind of problems and if it's clean. Um, basically, what's going to happen is he's just going to grow it out, get the lab test, and then start just distributing it to all the facilities down there. So, uh, um, you know, there's a royalty deal involved. Obviously, um, there's a contract that me and him signed together. But, uh, and it's not even about like the money, man. I'm just, it's just gonna be really cool to just be a part of, uh, you know, the community in a, in a deeper way, you know, especially, you know, down in Cali, that's, it's, it's just like where it all began pretty much. So just to be, 
uh, you know, even just seeing my name in the dispensary of, of, of my stuff would just be really, uh, really cool in itself. And, uh, you know, and it, it's just gonna be nice that you guys can experience all, everything that I have. So congrats. Yeah. yeah, congrats yeah. to you. I look forward to it. And uh, if it comes around anywhere in my region, maybe I'll try and grab a cut of it to see what it's all about. I know growing from uh, seed well, is, so, is cool, but. Well, the licensing deal is strictly for him to, that only he, that him and the facilities can have the clones. So uh, basically the only thing that people would have access to would be, I mean, and that's not to say that things could change, you know, but as of right now, the conversation we had was the facilities it would be strictly from him to the facility and then even the facility wouldn't be able to give out clones. But I mean, I'm not, I'm completely open to having it accessible because I would love that too. If everyone can actually grow it at home, I would love that. But just initially uh, the original conversation was uh, to get it in the facilities. But hopefully, yeah, I mean, hopefully we can move and transition into that where it can just be available at like uh, Dark Heart Nursery or whatever. I don't know what you guys have down there for nurseries, but uh, yeah. Dark Heart's where most uh, home growers can get access to a lot of uh, commercially available or bread stuff like Humboldt Seed Company works with them. They've got like the Venom OG and Pineapple Upside Down Cake was through the Dark Heart Nursery where my uh, buddy sourced it. And it was yeah. extremely healthy and exactly what it said it was. And I'm impressed with them so far. I'd like to maybe get my hands on some of the finished product with uh, whoever Hendrix sends those clones out to then and uh, see what it's all about because you and Dr. MJ both seem to have a high affinity for it. So there must be a reason. Yeah, definitely, man. And uh, random side note, um, there's a company called Canna canonical i think laboratories up here in massachusetts because that's where i'm from is mass um and basically they do uh tc courses so they they basically sit you down and teach you how to do tissue culture like one-on-one -on -one and uh set you up so that you can leave and i'm going to be doing that it's only a thousand dollars which seems kind of pricey but i think it's a long-term investment because i feel like if i'm going to have any relations with anybody in the industry like nobody will just take a no, nobody who's running a professional business is just going to take a raw clone from somebody. And unfortunately, TC is the way to go. So I'm going to, I'm trying to venture into that now so I can uh, basically have the option to, uh, you know, it just opens up so many more doors if I can have uh, fresh, stripped clean uh, phenos that I can give to these places. So that'd be, that's kind of interesting too. And that becomes a business in and of itself. If you want to clean up cuts for people in mass, your local area, they're like, hey, I've got this, uh, speaking of mass, ChemDog, where Chem91 came from been around since 1991 maybe that plant's getting Absolutely. some viral load and pathogen issues and if you tc it properly you can uh, reduce that and get it back to maybe not its original vigor but a lot closer to its uh, health that people appreciate it for and that actually shows oftentimes in the cannabinoid testing and terpene profiles yeah just to mention that uh, for people who don't know in the chat we always get new people all the time there are several viruses that um there are several more viruses that are thought that might exist, but there are some many many less that are confirmed. Lettuce sclerosis virus was recently confirmed in Israel. Um, B. Krilitov virus in Colorado, uh, United States, um, and uh, there's also the cryptic uh, cannabis cryptic virus as well. Um, Hoplite viroid. Hoplite viroid. I have a question, Matt. So. Where did, is there any like research on where these originated? Was it just like a viral, was it a viral thing that started in plants and they're just able to jump from plant to plant or is it like a cannabis related type thing? Like how does that, what's all that about, you know? Like how do viruses jump hosts? I mean, did it just start in in any plant and then it just passes through plant to plant or is it like cannabis specific viruses? Virus, so virus uh, ontology is really, really fascinating. Um, there's a couple of new hypotheses basically. But essentially, yeah, like 
there are there's like a group of plant viruses that are generally more related to each other um but that group is also quite related or at least some of them are to uh a group of fungal viruses too so there may be some play there also certain virus groups are thought to maybe even just be like rogue kind of thought of like as rogue genetic code that came from like plastids for example so there's some so maybe for certain for certain groups of viruses that might be how they kind of came to be um but yeah so lettuce sclerosis virus infects a whole ton of different viruses it's a creamy virus so it's from the gene so it's, it's the creamy viruses which are thought to originated because the first time we ever found them and we pretty much only find them in uh, southwestern north america so like and i was talking about this with somebody else recently like when people talk about resistances and plant health and physiology and that kind of a thing it's like sometimes things don't develop near other things and so when they make contact with those things you know they the host can't really deal with the virus for example right and so um your plant can be super healthy it could even be resistant to a lot of other pathogens but there might be another pathogen that is able to interact with the plant's physiology and the plant has had like no experience with that kind of sort of uh virulence factor hey i just wanted to ask anybody uh i think uh i'm gonna stick around for at least 10 maybe a 15 extra minutes today because we kicked it off a little bit late and i know the michigan bros grow show might be getting back a little bit late because they're doing their float thing and uh so i just wanted to give anybody the opportunity if they do have to leave right now to give their sign out and then we'll go for a few extra minutes. weird feedback i just wanted to comment on somebody's mic. it's kyle's mic yeah kyle sorry no worries but does anybody have to uh, get going or do you guys want to keep the conversation flowing for the next 10 or 15 i'm going to go ahead and take the opportunity to jump out and thank you very much so uh jason hota herb on instagram at hota herb j-o-t-a-h-e-r-b uh, if you're interested in regenerative uh farming practices korean natural farming just some of the great stuff you can do at home hit me up on instagram i'm there all the time thank you very much happy happy sunday everybody happy july everybody uh thanks everybody fantastic conversation tonight uh super fun super interesting stuff i gotta go check out your videos dr uh dr mj uh, and those lighting i'm really interested in checking that out cool Have a great weekend, everybody peace out hold on Thank you so much for coming, Hotel. We always appreciate you. Uh, whenever you have the chance to make it, you're always welcome. And uh, I'm sure everybody in the not only panel, but also the chat and listeners all appreciate your input as well. So thanks again for joining us. Thanks, everybody. Have a great one. With that said, does anybody else have to get going or do we want to uh, keep on chatting for a little bit? I know we had a good uh, little conversation going there. I liked the virus question. Oh, yeah. So in, in regards to the virus, I think to be a little bit shorter and, and clear for Kyle, it would depend largely, I would say, specifically on which virus or viroid you're curious about, because all of their origins are going to be slightly different depending on which one it is. And I will sh uh, plug Matthew's YouTube channel so he doesn't have to do it uh, shamelessly. But he has several videos about a lot of not only the virus and viroids, but their origins and uh, which species they've jumped from and how they're able to be uh, so pestiferous. And uh, so shout out to Sentinel on YouTube because he definitely has some videos that 
cover at least a few of the things that we've mentioned. Well, I have a question then. So now that we're thinking about this, so let's say there is a plant that is viral. Let's just say it's 100% confirmed viral and you take a piece of an internode to do TC. And I know there's other uh, spots of the plant that you can do TC with, but like essentially doesn't that piece still have the virus in it? So even though you're putting it into this, you know, this rooting hormone gel or whatever the hell it is, uh, how is that not still, how is it being stripped clean if it's still like a part of it? Some of them combined a heat treatment with uh, the tissue culturing. And I, I think also the tissue culture, the same uh, freshest, cleanest meristem each time. So they take the cutting from the newest growth tip or, or wherever in, in certain processes. TC is a term that's broad and there's several different ways to do tissue culture. So in, in one method, they can take the newest growth and then they maybe re-tissue culture that over and over and over. And they also are using heat treatment and I think even cold treatment in some circumstances uh but i think that is also like under proprietary because one of the people who handed out the most hoplatin viroid clones for example was dark heart nursery but they had the scientists who then went and discovered and found out what it was uh that it is infecting cannabis that it is causing problems and they offered a suggestion on how to fix it but it is through them and them alone it's not cheap last part again just uh, that Dark Heart offers a solution if you do have the hoplite and viroid, but it's not cheap. And it's only really offered through them. I believe it's proprietary, proprietary at this point. They do not share their exact methodology. Yeah, yeah from right. what I understood on the tissue culture, they take that apic apical meristem, which is like the very tippiest, most newest growth that isn't infected, as this is what I understand, that isn't infected with anything because it's so new that the pathogen hasn't had a chance to invade it yet. And that's what they create the new plants from. Cause you really only need a couple cells supposedly. Um, and that's how they do it. I could be mistaken. So I'll let yeah. Zetsman all elaborate. You guys, no, you guys said it as succinctly as I could have definitely like, yeah, thermotherapy it's called, or it's called other things too. But yeah, heat's one way. There are other ways to do it. Just as a quick, like, you know, sort of reference like the virus uses the cell machinery in the plant to make more of itself. So that's the parasitic interaction you could say. So, you know, it, it binds to a receptor, puts its uh, RNA or in some cases DNA into the um, cell and the machinery works. I don't really know all of the details, but that's basically what happens. And so uh, makes tons of itself. And, um, you know, so like in a lot of cases when plants resist that, um, they're able to do that because the cell's able to like lyse itself, kind of detect the virus or lyse itself before that kind of happens. And that sort of like stops the process. And if it's able to do this rapidly um, and quick enough and everything then, or a plant might just like abscess the whole leaf or both of those things. So there are ways that plants um, can take care of viruses but yeah, um, it's a pretty sophisticated process. And if the plant or other organism didn't evolve around those particular pressures, or it's been a long time since they've evolved around those pressures, then that can be problematic for the host. It might not be able to defend against the infection. A lot of times insects also, and other arthropods, vector. So that's another problem too, where... 
um, you know, if the, vi the virus can only really infect because of the vector and they're only able to do so because they have that stylet that the insect has that um, plants it right into the, well, into the plant. Is it common that there are uh, viruses like the cannabis cryptic virus in other agriculture? Like, is that found in, in corn things and other, uh, you know, agriculture and horticulture that there are certain viruses that just exist but don't necessarily have a negative effect on the plant? Yeah, um, I think it's kind of hard to prove. Well, no, not, it's not proving a negative, but it's kind of hard to really answer that question because there's not as much research on it, I think, as there could be. But yeah, those things do exist. You even have beneficial viruses sometimes. I've talked about the heat stress tolerance virus for the curvularia fungus that uh, if it colonizes salt, a special salt grass, then it can exist in this like much more hot um, soil condition. So it's a virus and a fungus in a plant that allows for that effect. And if it doesn't, if the fungus doesn't have the virus in the plant, then it doesn't work. Um, so you get like really interesting cascading effects like that sometimes. Um, but like for actual like cryptic viruses, yeah, there are things like that that exist. Um, and for cannabis cryptic virus in particular, it's kind of interesting because it seems like it's related. And I have videos on legisclerosis virus and cannabis cryptic virus on my YouTube channel um, where I go over how cannabis cryptic virus is similar to some of the fungus viruses, some of the mycoviruses. And it's possible, it's postulated in this paper that maybe it switched from a fungal host to a plant host, possibly even before cannabis existed when it speciated from uh, the same common ancestor as hops, maybe. Interestingly, kind of unrelated, but uh, interestingly enough, THC in a recent study was found with mice to uh, save 100% of the mice that were affected by acute respiratory distress syndrome or ARDS. And that was just THC, good old THC, the stuff that you and I all love and smoke for the most part on this panel. And um, I think because of that, they're using the link that I just dropped into the live chat as a reason to try and fund and look into um, this as a potential coronavirus, um, maybe not cure, but a way to treat people that are having cytokine storms. Uh, and it's a really interesting article because when they infect these mice with the staphylococcal enterotoxin B, uh, typically they would die. And when they were given THC, 100% of them ended up living. And so I think that that's a very interesting note to leave on, although it's not plant virus. Uh, I know the virus talk's going around. And there's also a good future cannabis project video where a husband-wife research team come on and talk about potential cannabis uh, tinctures that are used as COVID-19 um, responses to people that are having severe symptoms. So really interesting stuff to look into. I want to drop those breadcrumbs because I've looked into them and there's actually a lot of science to back it. And it's not just a uh, woo-woo. This is potentially groundbreaking and even more so a reason to deem cannabis as essential so we can start doing more research and uh, potentially apply it to save lots and lots of lives. Hey, you guys... <laughs> I have a question, uh, one last question for anybody who probably has any input. Do you think it's so far-fetched to think that, obviously, I mean, granted, uh, you know, the human anatomy is different than plant, but, like, how we can come up with cures for certain viruses and diseases. Do you think there's a way that we could potentially, in the near future, find a way to feed these plants to cure them of the viruses? 
So, um, potentially, the thing about it is that it would have to, I would think, depending on how it works, it would have to somehow allow, it could, like, make the immune system more, the thing is that if the, if the plant doesn't have the immune response that would do the thing that it needs to do, then it doesn't really matter. Right, if the plant stands a chance of being able to defeat it, you could strengthen that and create antibodies in a similar way right now. Right, exactly. But so, if the plant can't fight it off, there's not much to work with there. Right, so like... Um, there, How there, about my... Sorry, go ahead. No, well, so like, it's not like a, it's not like a pathogen where like, a, for like a bacterium um, or a fungus, you could use like an, a fungicide or a bactericide or something like that that like selectively kill some aspect of their physiology. There are things like that, but I think that you would want to bolster the innate immune system response, and that might be mostly genetic. Let me ask you this, Zentanol. Uh, so, like, I, my I always like the idea of uh, infecting something with uh, something good, so that something bad can't get in there. Is there any good viruses that like will will hold the spot that a bad virus could? So I know that's the kind of thinking on certain uh, foliar applications where uh, beneficial fungus will take hold and not allow something like PM to start, right? Really good question. Um, I think that, I don't think so. Um, I'm not a virologist, so I could be just not aware of it. But I think right, I'll that, give you eight years. Get on that and yeah. get back to me. <laughs> yeah, I well, sort of agree in not and not thinking. So I think that fungus in particular sort of occupies space in a different way than a virus does and can then sort of colonize an area and prevent colonization from another fungus. Yeah, it's kind yeah, of like it's, different. It's, it's super fascinating to think about it like this, but because but because of that exact physiological lifestyle difference, right? like fungi and bacteria and other sorts of pathogens, they like occupy a physical space and they kind of like just colonize it. But what viruses are really doing, uh, unless they're like retroviruses and they become part of your own genome, which I guess is a way to survive. Um, you just, uh, it's, just, it's like literally it gets into the plant. It makes contact with these cells. It, somehow it's like this long game of like tag your it that's been going on for, hundreds of millions of years and the viruses they make contact with the cells the cell makes a ton more of the viruses it, it, it blows up those viruses get to the other cell receptors repeat 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 um, and then that plant dies or doesn't but uh, maybe the virus gets into the seed and maybe it continues with the plant and is vertically transmitted that would work really great but uh, usually the ovaries in a plant um, and a lot of other animals, but for that matter, like usually that stops. Although there is an intimate connection and some viruses are able to exploit it. It's really just like, you know, if all the plants like ceased being affected, like by a virus that was affected or um, vectored by an insect, let's say for like one season, if we could like make it so that those plants could never be contacted with um, their hosts and all the hosts died or something, um through one generation then that would not uh th then there would be no more virus for the most part um if that makes sense kind of it's like it's kind of crazy to think and i'm monologuing at this point that like the viruses can just um 
that they've been able to like stay in vectors season to season to season for hundreds of millions of years. Um, hopefully that makes sense. So you're saying it's more likely that they're ancient than a new one that's springing up. And uh, somebody in the chat, uh, Zig Zaddy, says so it can just show up from out of nowhere. And I think it might feel like that, especially if it's a new virus. But uh, I defer to Matthew for that one. Like they're all there. The thing is that like, it's like because there's a lot of reasons why a virus that has already been around, like let's close this virus. We already know about LCV. We know about it in lettuce and a bunch of other um, crops, but really we've only known about it since if, in my Lesclerosis video, I talk about the origins of the coronaviruses and as far as we've documented. And I think we've only started knowing about this since like the late 60s, right? So, so they're actually kind of new. And they also have kind of a unique way that they uh, replicate. Um, uh, so yeah, it's like, it's just kind of, it's, it's sort of like the plants naturally would never have made contact with these viruses potentially. Like if creamy viruses originated in North America, like we think, and cannabis existed in Eurasia, and if it wasn't for the Colombian exchange or perhaps other sort of global exchanges as well, cannabis would never have made contact with it. And so, you know, that just kind of happens. And so from, from human uh, facilitation primarily, um, we have all of these sort of like interactions that wouldn't normally happen, if that makes sense. It makes perfect sense. And I think it's a perfect place for us to wrap up for tonight. And I think uh, we could start going into the shout outs. Noah the Groa, I'm going to pass it to you first. So All right. You, to say. Yeah, no, thank you. Uh, yeah, no, I was just getting ready to get going here. Uh, great show, everybody. I had a great time. If anybody has any questions about what I'm doing on my page at Noah the Grow with two E's, more welcome to stop by and have any questions other than that i'll see you guys next week thanks again for joining us noah always a pleasure to have you and look forward to seeing you next week the american Peace one out, oh, do you want okay. to go ahead and give out your sign off sure. sure this american one uh great host tonight jack shout out to shane shout out to chat um and yeah you could uh, check out my stuff on uh ig at the american one with a keens and youtube on just the american one and uh, yeah, it was great tonight. Thanks for having me. Thank you for coming, as always. Appreciate your input. And uh, you're always welcome to come back on whatever week you're available. So thanks again for coming, the American one. Tao, look for that guy with the American top hat. Uh, it's very fitting because it was just 4th of July. So uh, celebrate that uh, country with a lot of cannabis freedoms for many states here. So here, here to that. Next up, we have Dr. MJ. Hey, hey, yeah, it was a fun episode. Thanks for hosting, Jack. I, uh, Dr. MJ Coco from Coco for Cannabis. I want to remind everybody about the Plant Training Grow Challenge, which starts in August. Uh, we got four different groups. We got a bunch of really cool prizes. I just lined up a really cool grow light I'll be able to tell you about soon that we'll be giving away like an $800 light um, and a bunch of other things. So registration is free. All you got to do is grow together. Um, check that out at Cocoa for Cannabis forward slash challenge. And I'm giving away a Spider Farmer SF2000 at the end of this week. Um, you just have to go to our test report page and register for that by Friday. Um, and we're going to do the drawing and I will announce the winner here on the show next week. Um, so make sure everybody goes and signs up. I'd love to give it away to somebody in our community here. So 
those are my shout outs. Thanks, Jack. Thanks, everybody on the panel. And thanks to the chat. Thank you for coming, Dr. MJ. And uh, I really do agree with you. I hope that somebody within our community wins that light. It's always cool to see someone in the chat say, oh, I want it. And then you go and check them out on Instagram and you see them growing with that light. They're putting it to good use because the people that are listening to this show clearly want to grow cannabis, clearly want to learn more about how to grow their own for the most affordable price. And uh, I think a big part of that is having good IPM. So Matthew, I'll pass it over to you for your sign off. Thank you for all your input tonight. Thank you. I really appreciate the questions from chat. I was saying just as much in the chat. Um, and yeah, I really liked the, what can I say? I really like the questions. I love talking about heady topics like, you know, what does it mean to taste and smell? And, you know, what's the evolutionary origins of creaniviruses? It's kind of up my alley. So it was great. If you want to know more about pest information, you can check out my pest primer videos on YouTube channel Xenthanol, which is the same account I was commenting with. You can also find me on Instagram at SyncAngel. Thank you so much for joining us. And I do uh, highly suggest that people, when they hear these shout outs, go back. And if you heard someone that you uh, connected with on the show, go and uh, make sure you find them. And uh, I think Kyle, Predicated Breeding, I don't know if I've given you a chance to sign off yet. No, but I'll do it now. Yeah, my name's Kyle Breeder. Um, if anybody's looking for uh, good canvas seeds, uh, feel free to go to pbreeding.com, the letter pbreeding.com. Uh, I basically only deal with plants that aren't sensitive to hermaphrodism, at least I try to. Um, but yeah, Jack, I, I think you did a really good job today. I think tonight was a good conversation. Uh, if anybody wants to find anything that I'm doing or has any questions about what I'm doing, uh, all social media platforms, predicated breeding, and I'm um, looking forward to next week. Thanks again, Jack. Thank you for joining us, Kyle. I know sometimes we've had some connection issues and things like that, but I'm always happy when you can get through here and, and come on live and join us for that. Thank you. With that being said, I believe that I'm the last one. I hope I didn't miss anybody. Uh, Hota Herb left a little earlier. Shout out to him. Shout out to Rust Brandon and Spartan Grown, uh, some of the panel members that weren't able to make it tonight. And also shout out to like Miss Nudie and Can Can Grow. We haven't seen them for a little while, but hopefully they'll come back and uh, do something outside of the Hydro Hustlers. They're always welcome on this panel. I hope that they know that. And um, thank you to everyone in the chat who showed up live, everyone who listens afterwards. We really appreciate all of your support. And you can find me on Cannabuzz at Jack Greenstock. You can also find me on Instagram at Jack Greenstock and Twitter at Jack underscore Greenstock. But mostly I just host the Growing With My Fellow Growers on Sundays. Uh, so make sure you just keep on coming back leave a thumbs up on this video if you enjoyed subscribe to the channel and all that good stuff and uh, make sure to show the at cheap home grow some love on instagram because he's the one who brought all this together for us and makes it happen so uh, we're streaming live from his youtube and his zoom so thank you to him for allowing us to continue the show and even when his presence isn't here he's uh, felt greatly by all of us and uh, we got much love for you shane so shout out to you we love everyone Girl, we love everybody. Peace out. I'm going to try and hopefully end the stream and make it not uh, look like it's playing live for the next hour because there's a way to I've do it. I've been seeing that in a lot of videos. Yeah, I think uh, Zoom's kind of not talking with YouTube quite right, but uh, here we go. We're going to kill the live.